How's that for a slice of fried gold? Are you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. I'm afraid I can't do that. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! I guess everyone's a title one good scare. Well, hello, welcome to Cinema Shop, the podcast exploring the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films. We do all the research so that you don't have to. We're the three guys that tell you everything you need to know about your favorite movies and the people who made them. So that the next time you're caught up in a nerdy movie conversation, not only now I can't even see it. Okay. Not only will you know what is going on, <laughs> you might actually be the expert. Was I fucking with I'm you? One of your hosts, Gary. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And I was like, I can't even, and you finally, it's just like Justin Bishop over part of the words. Do you want to redo it or just leave that in? We can, I don't care. I don't care. Anyway, you, you know what? You, we, we tell you Consi- about movies. Considering, considering about movie. the topic of our series, I say just leave it. Warts and all. Okay, we're leaving it in. Well, uh, did you say yeah. your name? You signed up for it. We're here. This is a movie. I'm Gary Horde. We're going to talk about it. <laughs> well, I am your other host, film historian Justin Bishop. And I'm writer-comedian Mr. Todd A. Davis. Yes, folks, this isn't any cheap X-rated movie or any fifth-rate porno play. This is the show you want. The sleaziest show on earth. Not actors, not paid imposters, but real, actual filth who are going to spend the next few weeks talking about the films of John Waters in order to present to you the most flagrant violation of natural law known to man. These podcasters know no bounds. They have committed to this series, and its mere existence should make any decent person recoil in disgust. Our series titled, John Waters divine filth the whole time justin was licking todd's armpit <laughs> <laughs> i'll be honest todd the problem with the- i never know what dialogue you're going to choose from the film to do these like intros and stuff and i was crossing my fingers that that's the one that you picked for this one <laughs> happy, so, happy to meet your expectations <laughs> you're sounding a little hoarse uh, Todd lost yes. his voice uh, hanging out in New York, I guess, is what happened. Yeah, between <laughs> travel and work, I, my voice was just like, you're done, fucker. <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> yeah, so if, you, if Todd sounds a little croaky, that's why. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't sounding great in the last episode, but uh, I know you didn't get it from me because I wasn't contagious. Yeah. And also, I haven't seen you since then in person, I don't think. So right. you've been traveling. <laughs> anyway. All right. So we are starting a new series, as Todd said, Divine Filth, a series focusing on the early films of John Waters. Uh, this is one that I've been uh, super excited about for a very long time. So I'm glad we're finally here. Uh, you know, over the years, John Waters has, you know, he's been given a lot of nicknames. Uh, he's been referred to as everything from the Prince of Puke and the Sultan of Sleaze to the Baron of Bad Taste and my personal favorite, the Pope of Trash. Uh, Waters once said, to me, bad taste is what entertainment is all about. If someone vomits while watching one of my films, it's like getting a standing ovation. But one must remember that there is such a thing as good, bad taste and bad, bad taste. And good, good, bad taste and bad, good, bad taste. It's a tongue twister. I'm confused. (laughs) John John Waters films, uh, they certainly show 
case, bad taste. We're, we're not going to beat around the bush. They do. Uh, but it's good bad taste, in my opinion. And they also showcase a wicked sense of humor and a satirical disregard for authority and anything else considered status quo. Uh, to put it simply, John Waters' films are punk. They're punk rock in film. Waters' early films are defined by the repertory of actors that he surrounded himself with, a group of misfits from Baltimore that became known as the Dreamlanders. And none of them were more famous than Divine, the 300-pound drag queen that became Waters' muse. So in this series, we'll be diving into Waters' early career, tracing it from the beginning through all of his collaborations with Divine and ending with their first big mainstream success, Hairspray, uh, which unfortunately also marked their their final collaboration before Divine's untimely death at the age of 42. Uh, spoilers. Divine died in 1988. I think that's common knowledge at this point. So that's a... Well, okay <laughs> then. Uh, <laughs> we will be starting this journey at the beginning, or at least close to the beginning, with Waters' 1970 film, Multiple Maniacs. Yes, folks, this isn't any cheap X-rated movie or any fifth-rate porno play. This is the show you want. Lady Divine's Cavalcade of Perversions. The sleaziest show on earth. Not actors, not paid imposters, but real, actual filth. Who have been carefully screened in order to present to you the most flagrant violation of natural law known to man. You're sick and repulsed. You, my dear, are dead. I am Divine. I asked my friend Paul Pratt, who is also the lovely Pollo Del Mar in the NWA, a drag queen. I put on Twitter, I I wonder if Pollo ever met Divide. He texted me and said, first of all, why would you flaunt your heterosexuality like that to just assume that (laughs) That all all drag queens know each other? other. He was like, also, Divide, he was like, the legendary Divide died in 1988. How old do you fucking think that? (laughs) (laughs) But Poyo does know, like, the Boulets and and Peaches Christ, you told me. So, like... He does know That's some. What I said. That, was know my, some that was my famous cover. drag queens. <laughs> I was like, you know, a lot of famous drag queens. Right. So this, I don't think it's unreasonable. But yeah, Divide. Maybe Divide was there at your birth. Divide's been dead for thirty-five years. So <laughs> it was then that I realized that she was using her spoiler warning as a tool of erotic pleasure. She made me get into a kneeling position. My head was spinning, and all at once, she inserted her spoiler warning into one of my most <laughs> private parts. Uh, every one of these spoiler warnings and, and, and intros and hopefully the Johnny has the keys thing are going to be gold. If he's using, <laughs> if, he, if you're just using John Waters dialogue to, to do it, it's, <laughs> I'm not going to change the format now. No. That's what I've been doing for oh, no, I love it. so many episodes. Again, this is exactly <laughs> what I wanted out of a John Waters series so far. <laughs> this and to know what Todd thinks. I'm excited about that as we go along. Uh, so let's go back. Uh, I said we're kind of going back almost to the beginning, but let's go actually all the way back to the beginning to April 22nd, 1946. That's when John Waters was born to an upper middle class family in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, one of four children born to Patricia Ann and John Samuel Waters. John spent most of his childhood in Lutherville, which is this affluent suburb of Baltimore. Growing up, he loved movies. Uh, he especially loved horror movies and any kind of movies that had good villains, in his words. 
his personal favorite movie of all time is The Wizard of Oz. And he says that, uh, quote, even as a child, I rooted for the Wicked Witch. To hell with Dorothy. <laughs> it seems that like, even when he was a kid, Waters identified with weirdos and outsiders. You can see that by his, you know, affinity for villains. You know, another favorite character of his was Captain Hook from Peter Pan. It wasn't Peter Pan. It wasn't Tinkerbell. It wasn't the Lost Boys. It was Captain Hook. That's who he loved from Peter Pan. And he would often dress up as Captain Hook and run around the neighborhood like in character, not break character, just being a fucking weirdo. And I think <laughs> part of the reason that he did this, it, I mean, this is just me guessing this is conjecture but i think that it's because he always seemed kind of compelled to entertain even if his brand of entertainment wasn't everyone's cup of tea or at least he hadn't found his audience yet he hadn't found the people for whom his brand of entertainment was his cup of tea uh, but he did keep trying uh, that's for sure he he would eventually use his talents to create uh, horror houses or horror mazes in the family garage and then charge other neighborhood kids a nickel to go through them so he's like a showman from, you know, he's like nice. seven years old, eight years old, and he's already a showman. It sounds like he'd probably get along with Sam Raimi. Yeah, probably. Uh, I mean, <laughs> you know, as far uh, they've got a very different sense of humor, I would say, but yeah. very similar motivation in that they, they just want to, like, entertain people. Granted, with, with John Waters, that's not his only motivation, but that's his number one motivation, I think, is to entertain people. And his other big motivation is to get a rise out of people, I think, you know. Mm -hmm. um, he also got into puppets when he was a kid, just like our, our old pal Alejandro Jodorowsky. Uh, and he'd put on these Punch and Judy shows in his yard, and he eventually became good enough at it that he was getting hired to to do this performance at children's birthday parties. Uh, but it was around the same time, when he was uh, around the same age, that he started getting into the films of uh, producer William Castle, I think we've talked about William Castle here on the show in the past, but you know, he's, he's the producer who did all these like crazy gimmicks in the movie theater. Like John Waters loved this stuff. He loved these like William Castle gimmicks, uh, stuff like having a skeleton flying on a wire over a crowded movie theater stuff to really, you know, like I said, get a rise out of the audience. So John Waters decided to incorporate similar gimmicks into his puppet shows. Then once he started using fake blood in his puppet shows, some of the neighborhood parents got a little <laughs> concerned. Uh, and he soon retired from the puppet show business, deciding to kind of quit while he was ahead. The only thing we're missing here is miming, because I <laughs> thought as I was watching this, I was like, would John Waters and Alejandro Horowski get along? I don't know Do that know? they would. I think they've, they've got, there are definitely some major parallels in their, uh, you know, in their careers, I would say. Although, you know, John Waters got started in filmmaking two decades earlier than Jodorowsky did. Two decades as far as their relative age, you know. Because uh, Jodorowsky was in his late 30s. I mean, he was 41 when he did El Topo. But I don't know that they would get along because, I don't know, John Waters just is a lot, he's a lot more likable, for sure, than... Jodorowsky and he will say things that are outrageous like Jodorowsky does but he does it in a way that's like humorous you know like he's being funny he's got a dark sick sense of humor but he's got a sense of humor he's being funny whereas Jodorowsky just like wants to piss people off <laughs> you know yeah yeah John Waters wants to shock you mm -hmm. mostly and I think Jodorowsky takes himself a lot more seriously John Waters wants to shock you to make to a point where you laugh you know, right. I think it is safe to say, based on these these stories we know about John Waters' childhood, that he was, you know, an eccentric kid. Uh, here's another example. One of his favorite childhood activities 
was whenever the carnival came to town, he would hitchhike to it just so that he could see the freak show. That's what he was there for. And he would just spend hours staring at the fat lady, just fascinated by her. And it, it, and again, it's he's always had kind of an affection for outcasts and weirdos. He wasn't going to see the fat lady just to gawk at her and make fun of her, as so many other people going to the carnival might have been doing. He was going because he was like genuinely thrilled to see her. Like that was fun to him. Yeah, he talks about in the commentary track for this one, like he would go to those sideshows and the fat lady would be sitting there in a polka dot dress and eating a peach and in the dirt and bees would be going around her and then like the other people would be like freaked out by her just to not be able to sit there and but he for some reason was like just enthralled by watching her yeah. sitting there eating a peach thing i think that's maybe where his love of like large women <laughs> might have come from because large yeah. women are a staple in general uh, in sorry jesus christ <laughs> large <laughs> women are a staple well jesus christ is a staple in, in this movie it's uh Large women are a staple in John Waters' filmography, though. I mean, starting, of course, with Divine, but Edith Massey, you know, Ricky Lake in, in Hairspray. Like, there's a lot of them. That's just kind of, like, something he enjoys. So, unsurprisingly, John Waters uh, wasn't very popular at the Catholic school that he attended. Uh, he was constantly getting in trouble with the nuns who taught his classes. Uh, but the, the Catholic school is also where Waters got his calling to be a filmmaker. It's kind of, sort of. Uh, you see, during their lessons, one of the nuns at, at, in his Sunday school or wherever would list off these titles of quote-unquote condemned movies for the kids, telling them, you will definitely go to hell if you see these movies. So naturally, this made John Waters' ears perk up, <laughs> and he made it a point to see every single condemned movie that he could. Basically, the nun was just giving him a list of movies that he wanted to go see. This is what I always say, and the world never learns. Censorship does not work. It just makes it that much more intriguing. Even if you don't get behind yeah. the thing, you just want to know what's so bad that you're not allowed to hear it or see it. Yeah. At least for me. And I mean, not illegal stuff, by the way, not illegal. Don't right. send me your fucking snuff films. Right. And yes, I mean you, John Waters. <laughs> <laughs> so both of all three of us have religious backgrounds. That's not a secret. We've mentioned it in many episodes. Do you guys recall hearing any minister, speaker, whoever condemning any particular films? I, I can't recall that. I mean, I'm sure it might have happened at some point, but I definitely, it, nothing I sticks being out in, in my church. memory. There was stuff like uh, Marilyn Manson. Marilyn remember, Manson, Dungeons know, and Dragons, yeah. all that Dungeons like textbook shit, you know, but yeah. I, I, I don't remember a specific movie. Like, I don't ever remember a minister going, oh, you're if you go see, I don't know, Friday the 13th, you're going to hell. I don't recall that ever happening. I remember being at a Christian summer camp and them really hammering the evilness of men in black. Tommy <laughs> <laughs> Lee Jones in general is a path to hell. <laughs> uh, I just watched men in black the other day. I, it's good. I mean, I don't know what's evil about it. That's hilarious. What the hell was their reasoning? Did they, do you remember? Uh, I, I distinctly remember them saying like the first, the first words in the script are a curse. <laughs> so are a curse. Word. Okay. And I was like, <laughs> all right. <laughs> but it was probably like damn or something. It was probably not it's like that, anything really. That bug that bug hits the windshield and he goes, "Goddamn bugs!" And <laughs> oh yeah, uh, that was like the big. That I think it. it's where Hell. that person stopped watching the movie and walked out, and then they yep. just condemned the whole movie because of that. <laughs> yep, exactly. <laughs>
That is a bummer. I do remember though that the like stuff like this is what I'm talking about with like Marilyn Manson. I mean, I'm not even like a huge Marilyn Manson fan or anything, but I know more about Marilyn Manson because my church told me how evil he was. Right, exactly. And I was like, <laughs> I want to know more well, about this guy. I was that... like buying magazines just to see interviews with Marilyn it, Manson. It, it becomes like, a fascination. What kind of shit does he say? It becomes a fascination for you when it's like this forbidden fruit kind of uh, you know yeah. situation where you want to know oh, well, what's the big deal? I got to find out what the big deal is. That's kind of the same thing I, that's happening to Waters here. You know, He's like, well, what's the big deal about these movies? So I'm going to watch all of them. I was not aware of Dungeons and Dragons until my mother forced me to sit and listen to a two-hour sermon on the radio denouncing Dungeons and, and Dragons. And you're like, this sounds pretty fucking cool. This is like, what I'm going to... sounds like fun. Dedicating my <laughs> life to this. My, the whole, <laughs> my whole thing was like, Mom, I don't play this game. Why are you... I, I want to do other stuff. I, I don't... Yeah, it was yeah. just nonsense. She was preparing you, Todd. Uh, <laughs> clearly. Clearly. Chris, Chris Pied, also a path to hell. <laughs> uh, I mean... You're going to see that a lot, though, throughout th this episode specifically, but probably through this whole series where you've got people banning or people causing a lot of controversy around John Waters movies that would not have been there otherwise. And it just makes more people want to see it. Uh, it happens. Yeah. It happens with this movie. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. Well, anyway, so John Waters, he's got this list of condemned movies. He's like, I'm going to see all of these. This these sound cool. Uh, so one way he did this was by sneaking up to a hill near his home where he could see uh, the distant drive-in screen. And he would watch all of the uh, adults-only gore and horror films using binoculars. So he couldn't hear them, but he could watch them. Uh, he would also comb through the newspaper, and he would clip out ads for all of the most violent looking movies, uh, kind of fantasizing about having his own movie theater where he would book the most notorious films ever made. But then John realized, you know, why show other people's films? Uh, he could just make them himself. So that's where he kind of found his calling uh, with these, like these condemned movies made him think, hey, I could do this. I could make these movies. He wanted to make the trashiest motion pictures in cinema history. Those are his words. Uh, he wanted to make the films that would be on future like condemned movies lists that nuns would recite to kids. He wanted there to be a list given to kids in, in Catholic school that had you know John Waters movies on it. You know, John, he, he didn't have a lot of friends at school. Uh, because again, he's kind of a weird kid. And I mean, if you've seen pictures of John Waters, even when he, even when he was young, he's a He's very skinny, very tall. Uh, of course, as he grew into a teenager, he has long, greasy hair. And like, he looks like the Crypt Keeper a little bit. But he did have other friends. Uh, but they were kind of neighborhood friends, not kids who went to his school. And his oldest friend, uh, who he had known since they were born, was Mary Vivian Pierce, who everyone called Bonnie. She only goes by Mary, Mary Vivian Pierce when she is in a movie, actually. That's the only time she goes by that by her full name. So as they got into their teens, John and Bonnie, they, they really, honestly, they sounded like a couple of hellions. They, they would like sneak into parties thrown by other local teens and they would drink all the liquor in the cabinets. Uh, they'd steal records. They'd just kind of cause general mayhem until they were run off by the kids, whoever, whoever's house they were in. And then Bonnie, she later became a babysitter. And she'd go to a house to babysit. John would kind of hide in the bushes at the houses where she was babysitting, waiting on the parents to leave. And then once they left, he'd go in. The two of them would break into the liquor cabinet. They'd drink all the family's booze and they'd eat all their food. So, you know, it probably goes without saying that Bonnie's babysitting career did not last very long. He calls her his oldest and best friend. They were inseparable. I, he even says one thing I was watching that like they were 
their parents were best friends for a long time. But then because they became such juvenile delinquents that their parents started forbidding them to see each other. And then eventually their parents like stopped talking to each other. <laughs> didn't want anything to do with each other. Like and Bonnie's parents probably thought John was a bad influence and John's parents thought Bonnie's uh, was a bad influence. <laughs> yeah. I said they, that they never talked for like 10 years and finally, but I guess it obviously didn't work for John and Bonnie, but yeah. eventually the parents also came back together they reconciled. and they became friends again. Well, good. Another one of his close friends was a girl named uh, Mona Montgomery, who was his his shoplifting buddy. Uh, some interviewees have said that it was a, that Mona was John's girlfriend for a while. Uh, but John and Mona, they would often trek to New York City, where in addition to just stealing a lot of shit, I mean, if you read John Waters' books, uh, the section of his autobiography, he talks a lot about shoplifting. Like they stole a lot of shit all the time. But while they were in New York, they would also see all the like, the underground films that were coming out at the time, films from the likes of Kenneth Anger and Andy Warhol. Some of the same stuff we talked about a little bit at the beginning of our Jodorowsky series when we were talking about the history of kind of underground movies. Then when Waters was 17, his grandmother, knowing that he had an interest in film, gifted John an 8mm camera. So Mona, at the time, she worked at a photo supply store. So she just, you know, stole a bunch of film for John. Uh, but that allowed... John Waters to make his very first short film, which was a black and white underground film called Hag in a Black Leather Jacket. Weird to think of like a 17-year-old coming up with that. Yeah. With, yeah. Well, the thing, <laughs> if you listen to John Waters in interviews, he will say that when he like goes to write a movie, he always comes up with a title first. The title is the first thing that comes to him. Uh, and then he just kind of <laughs> uses that as inspiration almost, you know, which I love I love that idea because some of these short films that we're going to talk about, like they've got great titles. Hag in a Black Leather Jacket is a great title. They they even say like he he wrote everything on a yellow legal pad with a big pen. That's the same thing he did for every single like even the all the dialogue, all this stuff. He would like write it out first that way. That's even what he does to this day, according yeah. to some of these people. Well, this short Hag in a Black Leather Jacket, uh, which Waters calls a terrible film, is about. Uh, in Waters' words, it is about a black man and a white girl's wedding on the roof of his parents' house. He courts her by carrying her around in a trash can and chooses a Ku Klux Klansman to perform the wedding ceremony. So clearly, Waters was aiming to shock even at the age of 17. Uh, so that kind of gives you an idea of what this kid is like. So Hagin' a Black Leather Jacket, it starred his friend Mona. She plays the girl that's getting married. Uh, Viv Mary Vivian Pierce, Bonnie, you know, she, she appears in it as well. And this is actually... Her first of 16 appearances in films directed by Waters, which, uh, if you're keeping count, that is literally every movie, short or feature length, that he's ever made. She has appeared in every one of them. Uh, the film had its world premiere at the local Beatnik Coffee House, uh, which is the only showing the film ever had. Uh, it has never been released. You cannot find it anywhere. There's a copy of it in John Waters' attic somewhere. It's gone on a couple of road shows in recent years where he's like gone out and showed it. But you can't find it. I looked, and I believe me, I looked. <laughs> but it is not out there. None of these short films are, actually. None of these short films are available. But John Waters, with this film, he, he was kind of, he's officially a filmmaker now. He's 17 years old. He's made his first movie. And with Mona Montgomery and Mary Vivian Pierce, he had begun to build his stable of regulars who would work with him for decades, which were known as the Dreamlanders. Then one day, he's walking home from school. And John meets a neighbor about his age who had just moved down the street. Uh, he describes her in his book. Uh, and she just, he describes her in the most disgusting way. He says that she had like terrible acne and braces. And he's like, I immediately, this was drawn 
to this person. <laughs> so uh, her name was Carol Wernig. And this meeting would be life-changing for Waters. See, John and Carol, they hit it off immediately. And Carol introduced John to her eccentric circle of friends. And although Carol herself never appeared in any of Waters' films, these friends that he, she introduced him to would form the core group of Dreamlanders that he would work with over the next several years. Oh, Carol, what have you done? <laughs> <laughs> so oh, let's talk a little bit about the Dreamlanders, or at least the, the ones that we're going to see in these first few films. Uh, a lot of these early Dreamlanders were folks that John referred to as bad suburban kids. These were kids that, you know, some of the more people he grew up with or people who grew up nearby there in, in Lutherville. These included Bob Skidmore, Mark Isherwood, and Mary Vivian Pierce. And, and then, of course, there's Glenn Milstead, better known to the world as Divine. Now let's talk a little bit about Divine. So Glenn, Glenn Milstead, born October 19th, 1945, to a conservative middle-class family in Baltimore, a conservative middle-class Baptist family in Baltimore, I should probably add. Uh, as an only child with well-to-do parents, Glenn later described himself as an American spoiled brat. See, his parents would pretty much give, he was an only child, his parents had a lot of money, and they would just basically spoil him, give him whatever he wanted, uh, any clothes that he wanted. Uh, they, they gave him whatever he wanted to buy to eat, which led to him being overweight even as a child. It was actually an issue that he dealt with for his entire life. And then in addition to being, you know, a little chubby kid, Glenn was very introverted as a child. He was not athletic at all. And he was pretty effeminate, which led to him being bullied constantly in high school. And then when he was 17 years old, his parents sent him to a psychiatrist where he first realized that he was sexually attracted to both men and women, which of course this is in the early 1960s. So that's like incredibly taboo at the time. So after high school, Glenn goes to beauty school. Uh, then he worked in several salons where he specialized in beehives and other upswept dues, stuff that was like really popular in the 60s, you know. Uh, and he would later actually run his own salon for a few years, uh, which was a venture that his parents completely financed. I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit on that because uh, a little before he had his own salon, when he was in his late teens, Glenn moved into the same neighborhood where John Waters and his family lived, and Carol Wernia introduced the two of them. And it was through this friendship that the group that made up the Dreamlanders kind of began to grow as John began to meet some of Glenn and Carol's other friends, uh, one of which was uh, Glenn's best friend, a guy named David Lockery. Lockery was Man, Lockery is quite a character, especially by the standards of the mid-60s. Uh, he was, for one, an out gay man. Uh, he was a high school dropout who later enrolled in beauty school. That's actually where him and Glenn met. They went to beauty school together. Uh, he has this weird little mustache. Uh, it's kind of shaped like a V. It's a really strange little mustache. Uh, he had a receding hairline, even though he's pretty young. Uh, but he, then he grew the rest of his hair out really long. And this was at a time when nobody did that. The hippies hadn't even started doing this yet. And then he dyed his long hair silver white, and he later would actually color it blue with a magic marker. Uh, Justin, correct me if I'm wrong. Didn't you used to do that in high school? I did. Yeah, absolutely, 100. <laughs> percent I, I I did color my hair with a with a blue magic marker. Well, mul uh, multiple colors of magic marker, but yes, of course, 100. Yeah. percent That was me. <laughs> <laughs> David became the first person to put Glenn in drag. In fact. Glenn, Divine, I'm going to start just call it, start using Divine because it's less confusing. Uh, Divine would later claim that he had never even heard the word drag before David. Uh, Divine's original drag look was actually modeled after Elizabeth Taylor, who's kind of like his idol. 
Uh, and he and David would often go to these drag balls in Washington, D.C., which, of course, you know, is really close to Baltimore. It's weird to think about Elizabeth Taylor like John Waters in the uh, – uh, and one thing I was reading was saying that, you know, it was some people didn't pick up on Elizabeth Taylor right at first with Divine or something. But then he said he also met Elizabeth Taylor towards the end of her life and said she looked a lot like Divine. Around that time, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's good to hear that because as I was watching this, I was like, kind of looks like a fucked up Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> I mean, that wig is very, uh, you know, 60s oh, yeah, Elizabeth very, Taylor. Yeah, 100%. Very, yeah. So during this whole time period, uh, Divine would throw these big, luxurious parties. He would rent out, you know, hotel rooms. He would give the fanciest, wildest parties in town, uh, usually appearing in his Elizabeth Taylor drag. At the time, uh, David Lockery was doing all of Divine's hair and makeup for these shindigs. Uh, and of course, he's a hairdresser or, or whatever. He couldn't afford this extravagant lifestyle on his own. So he would throw these parties and he would send the bill to his parents and then he would check their, his parents' mail before they did, and he would find the bills and he would just rip them up. So they never knew about it. Uh, they didn't catch wind of it, actually, until his father's credit got all fucked up as a result of all these unpaid bills that he had. Uh, when that happened, the jig was up and Divine couldn't keep sending bills to his parents, but he continued to throw these parties. Uh, but he just constantly stayed on the move, trying to stay one step ahead of the bill collectors. Uh, eventually, he had to actually move in with David Lockery. These people... Are I don't know if I would be friends with them or not. I don't know. They sound them. fun. <laughs> <laughs> they, they sound fun, but also lots of illegal activities. Lots of illegal so. activities, yes. <laughs> Nothing that's really hurting anyone, though. So uh, eventually, uh, Divine quits his job uh, and was at, at the salon, and he's financially supported by his parents for a little while. And, and during this time, you know, he started kind of looking at food as a coping mechanism. He began to put on more and more weight, which actually led to him kind of reinventing his drag persona. You see, Divine, uh, who, again, is is not known as Divine yet. We'll get to when Divine becomes Divine. At this time, it's just Glenn. But Divine originally played his drag pretty straightforward. You know, just your typical kind of glamour queen, very much made up to look like Elizabeth Taylor. Uh, nothing like over the top. But once he started gaining more weight, he began to evolve and he started doing something a little different, a, a more ridiculous, overblown and campy drag style. Not quite the one we're going to see down the line, like with Pink Flamingos. He's not there yet, uh, but he does have this look that would eventually evolve into the iconic divine look that we all know. All right. So John Waters, after, after you know, let's get back to John Waters a little bit. After skirting by in high school. John Waters briefly attended the University of Baltimore before transferring to NYU to take film courses. I don't know how he got in because he barely passed high school. Uh, he was like a pretty mediocre student because he just didn't care. He got bored very easily and, and just school wasn't his thing. But somehow he got into NYU. He enrolls in film courses. He's going to be a filmmaker. But he got bored with the classes very quickly once he started going there. Uh, so he stopped going. Uh, and he, instead, he would spend his day stealing books from a library and go into movies where he would see four movies a day, which he'd later say gave him a much better perspective on films than I would have gotten in a classroom. And it was while attending college in the mid 60s that he began experimenting with LSD. Uh, he had already been a avid weed smoker you know, for years since high school. Uh, and in college, it became a daily habit. And in fact, it was one that uh, his, his smoking weed habit would lead to him getting kicked out of NYU after being there for only three months. I uh, saw an interview with Pat Moran, who 
says, uh, this is probably like the best thing that ever happened to him. He was probably bored because so pretty quickly he learned, you know, film school is only going to do so much for you that if you want to make something, then just go make just it. Just go make it. And you have to, yeah, you just have to do it. Well, after getting kicked out, he gets back to Baltimore and he begins uh, tripping more than ever. Those are his words. He just started doing more acid. <laughs> he, he'd do acid and, you know, he'd go watch Ingmar Bergman's The Seventh Seal. Uh, it's John Waters is funny because you'd think watching his movies, or if especially if you only know his movies by reputation, that a lot of his influences would be just grindhouse stuff. But he's like very into art house cinema and takes a lot of influence from art house cinema. Uh, Igmar Bergman is one of his favorites. Fellini, he was a big fan of. You know, guys like this. He that's what he would watch when he went to New York. He'd watch these underground films and he'd watch foreign films. It was also after his return to Baltimore that he met another one of his closest collaborators, one of the quintessential Dreamlanders. Uh, when he moved back, you see, he met this girl named Seek. Seek Stoll is her name. And through Seek, met her sister, Nancy. Uh, and Nancy became a very close friend of Waters and has to date appeared in every single one of his feature films under the name Mink Stoll. Mink Stoll is a cutie. She's I don't know. my favorite Dreamlander. I love Mink Stoll. She is, I think she's adorable. I think she is charismatic. I just, I love her. She's my favorite. Yeah, I like her a lot. Uh, I think she said uh, they met in like 1966. They, uh, it was, like you said, her sister introduced them. They hit it right off. She said like shortly after they like moved in together, like went to New York and lived together for a little Briefly. bit. It was, yeah, it was like a month. Yeah. I think she said <laughs> and that she was like scared to death. She stuck it out because of him, but finally he just got bored and just kept pining for Baltimore. Yeah. And so wanted to move back. She was like, yes, let's go. Let's yeah, go he, now. he gets she, homesick pretty easily, I, I feel like. I mean, he's, even now, he's got several houses, you know, different cities across the country, San Francisco, wherever. Uh, but Baltimore is still where he al always goes back to. He's always filmed his movies there. Even when he didn't live there full time, he always returns to Baltimore. Well, bless him. He must be charismatic as all hell because he just, I don't know, even like Mink, she talks about like he'd already done like Hag in a black leather jacket at this point. Mm -hmm. So she first got to jump in in 66 on uh, the Roman candles. Yeah. But uh, she was like, this is my first film. It's just a small part. I'm getting spanked. <laughs> <laughs> he he has a way of talking people into it. Well, uh, let's talk yeah. let's talk about that a little bit. You know, uh, her first appearance, as you said, would be in Waters' next short film, which he referred to as his first real movie, which is Roman Candles. Uh, and it was while working on Roman Candles that he thought up the name Dreamland Studios for his production company. Although the studio was really just his parents' front yard and his childhood bedroom, there wasn't a studio. Uh, Roman Candles was conceived as an homage to Andy Warhol's Chelsea Girls, which Waters had, of course, seen in New York. And it was screened using three projectors simultaneously, which is how Chelsea Girls was done. So this film, Roman Candles, it runs about 40 minutes and it uh, features random scenes of Malcolm Soul in a nun habit drag. A priest drinking a beer, a woman being attacked by an electric fan, a drag queen, uh, a drag queen riding a motorcycle, and Divine playing hide and seek. <laughs> Actually, let me jump in here real yeah. quick because I'm curious about this, and it just hit me to be more curious about this. What does that mean? Three screens? Is it like all, all different shit, or is yeah, it like yeah? There's three different. He, he's got three different films that are being projected simultaneously. And I think the way that he did Roman candles is he actually overlaid the images. So they're all it's three different projectors, one screen, and they're kind of overlapping. That's what it sounds like to me in all the descriptions I've read of it. Does that make huh. sense? 
yeah, very, very Weird. strange, you know. Yeah, yeah, but you know, but again, he's he's like being influenced by experimental films and you know underground films where they would do shit like that. So it was actually on Roman candles that John Waters bestowed the name Divine upon his friend Glenn. So Divine is officially known as Divine now. Uh, but Divine was not the star of Roman Candles. And in fact, if you find the poster for Roman Candles, which you can find a picture of it online, uh, Divine's name doesn't even feature on the poster. Several of the other people that are in it do, but Divine's isn't. But the film does feature several other Dreamlanders. You know, you've got Mona Montgomery in there, David Lockery, Mary Vivian Pierce, Mink Stoll, Bob Skidmore, and Pat Moran. But the star, I mentioned it during that description, the star of the short is a woman named Malcolm Soul. Malcolm Soul was a staple in Baltimore's art scene. She was known for her wild looks. She had burnt red hair. She wore this white chalk makeup and very, very long eyelashes. Uh, Water said that she scared everyone, but he loved her, referring to her as my first star. He was kind of, I, I feel like she was John's first like muse almost. The world premiere of Roman Candles, world premiere, I'm gonna put that in quotes. The world premiere of Roman Candles took place at um, a church of all places. Uh, you see, a mutual friend had recently introduced Waters to this somewhat eccentric reverend at Baltimore's Emmanuel Church, and Waters just asked the guy if he could use their hall for his premiere, and the reverend is like, okay, let's do it. For as much shit as the church is going to give this movie, or could give this movie, I just would like to remind them that it's partially your fault. <laughs> All of this. You're going to have a lot of involvement with John Waters. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, he wanted to go... Uh, promote this. So he had all of his dreamlanders dress up in their most outlandish attire and go out and canvas the neighborhoods of downtown Baltimore. And a lot of folks in downtown Baltimore, remember this is like 19, what, 66 or so. So a lot of folks seemed pretty horrified that a group of suburban kids were laughing about homosexuality, drugs, and religion. And then the Baltimore Sun got a wind of it. They did a big article on it, which, of course, only led to the film's notoriety, which is kind of what we were talking about before, Gary. So Baltimore yeah. Sun comes out with a screening saying, you know, talking about how could they do this? How could they make a, a joke out of this? So uh, all three screenings sold out. They sold out every screening. How can they make a joke out of this? I don't know. I want to know. Let's find out. Yeah, let's go find out. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, Waters tried to follow that up with another short film called Dorothy the Kansas City Pothead. You know, that was his, he loves Wizard of Oz, remember? So this is a Wizard of Oz inspired short that saw Pat Moran playing Dorothy and Malcolm playing the Wicked Witch. But the project never really got off the ground, and only a little bit of footage was was ever shot, which you can actually find on YouTube, oddly enough. Of, of all these short films, that's the only bit of footage you can find. Um, and we've mentioned Pat Moran a couple of times here. You just mentioned her as well, Gary. We'll, we'll talk about her later. We can't give a bio on every single Dreamlander, or we'll be here all day. Uh, but we will <laughs> talk about Pat Moran, because she's, she's a cool character. I don't know. She seems very businessy, but also like... Got her old little weird. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these these on. these are all these people were all weirdos in the sixties, of in one way or the other. Some of them have gotten out of their weirdness. She's gotten out of her weirdness a little bit, but like George Figs and Susan Lowe are still total no. fucking weirdos. <laughs> oh yeah, that's like their lifestyle. All right, so a little bit after this, uh, Waters graduated from an eight millimeter camera to a sixteen millimeter camera. So he's you know moving up a little bit in the world. He starts working on his next film, which is called Eat Your Makeup. Another fantastic title for a film i think john waters has even said that's his favorite title of any of his films eat your makeup it's it's really great uh, so in this one malcolm soul 
She plays a deranged nanny who, with the help of her boyfriend, who's played by David Lockery, kidnaps young girls and forces them to model themselves to death in front of their crazed friends. Uh, Divine plays one of the friends who, during this, fantasizes that he's Jackie Kennedy and relives the JFK assassination in his mind. And according to Waters, Divine was the first person to ever play Jackie Kennedy on film. This, this short came out less than five years after the Kennedy assassination. I think one of Warhol's shorts also features someone playing Jackie Kennedy, so I'm not sure exactly which one came out first. But, you know, this is still fresh in the nation's mind, and he's make, kind of making fun of the JFK assassination already. It's very it's very close to Mary Poppins, honestly. What? <laughs> I was just well, I mean, just, it got past me. I don't know. Well, I just just reading just reading that first the first part of the description of oh, the uh, nanny. Soul plays <laughs> the deranged nanny <laughs> with the help of her boyfriend, okay. kidnaps the young kids, forces them to model themselves to death in front of crazy <laughs> friends. I was like, that's dangerously close to Mary Poppins. <laughs> I thought you were trying to make some kind of weird fucking conspiracy theory thing out of the JFK assassination. Like Julie Andrews Poppins. killed JFK? Is that what we're getting <laughs> that's, <right? laughs> that's in the bonus episode, guys. That's or Mary Poppins episode. describes the JFK assassination. <laughs> you just have to look for the clues. Uh, that's it. That's it. Well, just like Roman Candles, Eat Your Makeup premiered at the Emanuel Church. He was able to get that, that hall again there. And it was well received by the audiences there. But Waters knew it would never be a hit. Uh, calling it too fucked up and arty. <laughs> so he kind of knew what he was doing, you know. Uh, he knew this wasn't like going to be his big breakthrough. Uh, unfortunately, Malcolm Soul passed away from a drug overdose just a few weeks after Eat Your Makeup premiered. Um, I think it's safe to say, like, just listening to John Waters describe her and talk about her, I think that had she not tragically passed away at a young age, she may have very well been a longtime dreamlander like some of these other people we're talking about maybe even water's main star you know he might have even been like the john waters uh you know heroine but without her waters would have to find another muse and he found one in divine because although she wasn't the star of eat your makeup uh divine was the person that audiences really seemed to notice like people they they, they talked about divine when they talked about this movie divine had star power and waters knew that yeah uh divine's amazing and uh just this would be a good point to uh i i get paranoid about this for some reason when i'm going through it like a t- pronouns i i remember when i first met Poyo. And I'm, I'm sure Poyo will be happy to be referenced so many times but i'm sorry <laughs> that that's my main drag friend so right. this is, <laughs> when i when i first met i Poyo, i was like what what are the pronouns i use and it, and he was like, when I'm Paul, it's T. And when I'm Polio, it's she. Yeah. I guess that's how we'll do it. And I'm happy to say that when I was watching the commentary for this, uh, John Waters also said the very same thing about Divide. He said it was always like, he's like, I always say he most of the time. He's like, but it, when it's Divide, it's she. Yeah. He's like, he's like, for the record, Divide was never walking around in women's clothing outside no. of stuff we were doing. He was like, Glenn was out there doing most of the stuff he's like i actually asked him about that once and he said honey nobody wants to be in drag all the time especially fat people it is so hot (laughs) so sweaty well uh, yeah and i I, you know as i was writing my notes i i constantly refer to divine as he because divine is not like non-binary divine is not a trans woman divine is a man who dresses up as a woman he's a female impersonator and and john divine never went never specified hey call me she because again in everyday life it's just glenn divine's a character we just refer to divine as divine because that's the name that everyone knows but like divine was glenn milstead in everyday life so yeah most drag queens i feel like 
it's he when they're at a drag and she when they're in drag, unless they are, you know, non-binary or or or, uh, or trans, which is somewhat common in the drag community these days. But I just wrote, as I was writing this, I just constantly refer to Divine as he because that's what John Waters does. And John Waters and, and Divine were close friends, you know. So that's kind of where I took yeah. that from. I just like to thank everybody for tuning in. Uh, this week's episode of Three White Guys try to <laughs> navigate uh, the social <laughs> norms of today. Okay. Three, I, three well, straight, I feel like this is the perfect Three straight place. white guys. Three straight dudes talking like about the, pronouns. <laughs> this is the perfect place to tell everybody. I just came back from New York where I experienced my first drag show. Holy crap, it was fun. <laughs> oh, you saw uh, To Boldly Go? Yeah, to proudly to go. To proudly yes. go. To proudly to go. To proudly go. If anybody's interested, they are 501C, raising all kinds of money for stuff. They put on a drag show every week. A, a sci-fi, mostly Star Trek, but Star Trek sci-fi variety drag show every week. Right. Um, and it was an absolute blast. I love it. Uh, I love it. Drag my sh- wife has a lot. Of, my wife has a lot of fun stories about that. Drag night. shows are fun, man. They are. <laughs> yeah, it was a blast. I saw Boulet Brothers live recently, and it was oh. fan- it was fantastic. Nice, nice. All right. So for his next film, Waters was going to shoot big and create something feature length. No more short films. We're going to go for a feature length movie, a real movie. He wanted to make uh, real trash, and he knew that Divine would be the perfect star for this film. Uh, so to get the film made. Waters borrowed $2,000 from his father. $2,000 in 1968 or whatever, that's a decent amount of money, you know, uh, for a dad to just loan to their kid. Well, the film was called Mondo Trasho, and Waters would describe it as a gutter film. This is a film, uh, a movie that was filmed in alleys and gutters and laundromats, uh, deserted areas around Baltimore. And the plot to Mondo Trasho is, um, it's actually pretty complicated, uh, despite it not having any dialogue, only a music track. And I guess we should point out that all of these short films were silent. None of them have dialogue. Uh, Waters actually did not know how to sync sound. So he would just play like an audio track of music cues, uh, recordings of news reports, all kinds of other weird stuff uh, like uh, over the film. But there's no synced like dialogue audio at all. Uh, and the reason that Mondo Trasho has never been released commercially is because the music rights alone would probably cost about a million bucks. Because there's a lot of like very popular music used in it. In addition to like all kinds of other weird stuff, he's got dialogue in it. You know, you'll have like di- like divine speaking, but it's almost like a voiceover because he didn't know how to sync it to the live footage. Basically, did either of you have a chance to watch Mondo Trasho? Yeah, I was gonna say uh, you can see Mondo Trasho. It's on YouTube. I'm sure we'll post the link somewhere, Justin. Said, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll throw it up a, in the. Uh, we'll put it in the show notes. I found it to be a lot. Like it was just a, <laughs> it was something to keep up with. Yeah, but yeah, he he did it's, talk about he had a not, real to real tape. Not boring. Recorder. No, no, it's <laughs> not. John Waters don't do boring. Nope, he does not. <laughs> he does not do boring. I actually made the conscious decision to not watch it because I wanted to approach this with like as blank a slate as possible it's so i mean i i, I but I, like, I am interested to go watch it though <laughs> i mean, i like watching like an early film to see where the director came from you yeah. know what i mean yeah like even on the jodorowsky series we could have e- easily started with el topo because that's a that was his breakthrough film just like on john waters we could have started on pink flamingos but you know i like 
I like to see where a filmmaker starts and I like to see their mm. progression as an artist. So I think watching Mondo, I, I watched Mondo Trasho before watching multiple maniacs uh, because again, like Gary said, it is on YouTube. So it's pretty easy to find, even though it's never been officially released. That's the only way you can really watch it. But uh, you know, I would say it's for John Waters completist only probably, but it is really cool to see like this early version of what a John Waters movie could be. Cause it definitely has stuff that you would expect to see in a John Waters movie, including divine. I mean, divine's the main character character in it mm-hmm. or well i guess mary vivian pierce could be considered the main character although she's dead for most of the movie uh she gets run over by divine <laughs> but uh <laughs> speaking of which while they were filming that scene this is about halfway through the production of mondo trasho the filmmakers got busted for conspiracy to commit indecent exposure so in the in the film in the scene we're talking about where divine runs over uh bonnie she uh she sees a hitchhiker on the side of the road this guy and see now I'm saying she because the character's a she. Uh, this is gonna be ah. it's gonna be very confusing because because Divine only plays women in these films. He's not playing yeah drag queens. He's playing women. Uh, anyway, this this character that Divine's playing sees this hitchhiker and she picture pictures the hitchhiker nude. So Waters decided to film the nude hitchhiker scene on the campus of John Hopkins University early on a Sunday morning because he said it looked like the country. It looked like they were just gonna on a ride drive out in the country and he figured on early on a Sunday morning, nobody would bother them. Uh, but he was wrong. So while they were filming this scene, a campus police officer ran up and just started like yelling at them, threatening to have them arrested. Uh, Mark Isherwood, who was the actor playing the hitchhiker, he quickly threw on a bathrobe. Everyone piled in their cars and ran away. Uh, unfortunately, the car that they piled into was very conspicuous. It's the car that Divine drives during the scene, which was a bright cherry red Cadillac convertible. So pretty easy to spot, you know. <laughs> so it did not take long for the Baltimore PD to find them and arrest them for conspiracy. Uh, the whole group went to jail, uh, except for Divine. They actually hid Divine out. When they all ran away, they hid Divine out in a friend's apartment because Divine is a 300-pound drag queen and, like, is very easy to spot. So they hid <laughs> Divine. So Divine actually did not get arrested because Divine was not at home. But everyone else got arrested. They went to jail. And while they were in jail, John Waters used his one phone call to contact the ACLU. Uh, and the ACLU agreed to send a lawyer for them. That's some big thinking right there from it, John It Waters. really is. Yeah. <laughs> it really yeah. is. <laughs> uh, of course, the press ate this all up. They loved it. Uh, not only did the local Baltimore papers pick up this story about, you know, police arrest nude actor in a, on a film set or whatever, uh, but it made it so far as to the front page of Variety. Like, this was national news. I think wow. it was even mentioned in Playboy at one point. Like, they, they interviewed John's lawyer or something in Playboy. This is a big, this is becoming a big deal. So before the trial date, John's uh, lawyer, he sets up a screening for all of his previous films at the DA's office to kind of prove to them that John Waters wasn't some part of some, like, pornography ring uh, they're like this is it's just a goof with a camera making a movie you know so they showed hag in a black leather jacket and everyone watching it john as he describes the scene he said everyone watching it was clearly bored by it and somewhat disappointed that it wasn't more scandalous they just started like talking about other cases and stuff like they were totally zoned out i don't know if i guess at this time seeing some pictures john waters wasn't full john waters but i don't think it's out of reach to th- if you see John Waters with a video camera standing on a college campus to be kind of like, hmm, yeah, he doesn't have the mustache yet. Uh, he doesn't have the mustache, but he's he, like I said, he kind of looks like the Crypt Keeper. He's got the sunken in <laughs> cheeks, these sunken back big eyes. 
and long stringy greasy hair like he used to joke that his hair was he, he called it my bacon because he said he didn't wash it he would just lay it on a on paper towels and let the grease soak out of it like, <laughs> uh, 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 oh god <laughs> jennifer wasn't sure she watched this with me and oh, yeah. uh she I'm was surprised. like, wait, who is John Waters again? Yeah, yeah, me too. And uh, pro- probably be the last one she does. Right, but yeah. the, <laughs> the um, she was like, who is John Waters again? And I was trying to explain it. Then finally, the only the quickest way I could explain it to her was I uh, pulled up the video for Lonely Islands, uh, the creep. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <He's> the creep. <laughs> She's like, oh, that guy. That guy. That guy. <laughs> don't forget to smile. <laughs> so this trial, the trial itself was one big publicity joke, but Waters knew that all of this press would mean that his premiere was sure to sell out. And the DA's office, they realized that Waters was, like I said, just some weirdo with a camera. There was nothing really nefarious going on. And they wanted to save face by getting out of this whole mess with as little bad press as possible. So when Waters and his crew of Dreamlanders went to stand trial, they're all standing before the judge. They're really kind of nervous, of course, because they're all like, what, like 20 years old, 21 years old or something. Uh, they're all nervous, and during while they're staring up at him, the judge overseeing the trial, Judge Solomon Liss, which is honestly a fantastic name for a judge, he immediately dropped the charges, and he did so by reading a poem that he had written especially for the occasion. Order! Order! Old Baltimore is in a spin because of Isherwood's display of skin. He cannot bear the shame and cracks brought on by showing the bare facts. And so go then and sin no more. Disrobe if need be, but behind the door. And if again you heed the call to art, rest assured the judge will do his part. (laughs) So as he finished that... (laughs) <laughs> that incredible piece of poetry. <laughs> I just love that so much. Uh, That's awesome. The entire courtroom bursts into applause, as they should. <laughs> and uh, Waters' lawyer actually offered the judge two tickets to the premiere of Mondo Trash Show as a thank you. And the judge turned them down, saying, if it's as bad as some of the underground films I've seen in New York, I wouldn't be anxious to see it. <laughs> So at least he was honest. Well, this whole thing already sounds like a movie. It's a, like, I know there should be really a movie does. about really there should be a movie about the making of Mondo Trasho. Honestly, <laughs> uh, so Mondo Trasho once again held its premiere at Emmanuel Church, and thanks to all this free publicity they received, uh, all nine shows sold out. During the premiere, uh, I think it was at the midnight showings, because he did midnight showings uh, across uh, several days. But and, and during these midnight showings, he would do door prizes. And his door prizes uh, were dinner for two at one of the sleaziest hamburger shops in town. <laughs> Just like nice. the shittiest restaurant in Baltimore. He, he would buy you dinner for two. <laughs> that was your door prize. And the winner of the prize was a woman that Waters described as a mean hippie named Cookie Mueller who'd explained to Waters that he, she had just been released from a mental hospital. Uh, so Waters was... Perfect. Yes, yeah. Perfect. So Waters was immediately <laughs> drawn to Cookie's hard-as-nails attitude and thought she could be a perfect dreamlander. She uh, she began hanging, hanging out with him and his uh, crew of misfits, and she would actually go on to star in several John Waters films. She'd apparently talked about wanting to be an actress, and it always been... 
like kind of hesitant because she has the uh, noticeable speech impediment. Yeah, she's got a pretty on. pretty big lisp. Yeah, which uh, for the Dreamlanders is no obstacle at all. Not at all. <laughs> few <laughs> few things are obstacles for a Dreamlander. She she goes on. Uh, she she's one of the ones who's passed away now. Just on a side note, yeah. but she like later reinvents herself in, in New York as a writer. Uh, she she passed away due to the complications with the AIDS, I think. But uh, she, her girlfriend. Waters calls her the only straight girl I know who had a girlfriend for like several years. Uh, <laughs> but the, uh, uh, her name was Sharon, I think. But she's going to show up in Waters movies. Yeah, later, she right? she pops yeah. up in a couple of them, I think. So in addition to these Baltimore screenings, Mondo Trasho was also screened in Los Angeles. Uh, they managed to get it screened out in Los Angeles. And several big reviewers gave it positive reviews, including Variety, the Los Angeles Free Press, and Show Magazine. Uh, so Waters was starting to get kind of a reputation. Like, not a lot of people had actually seen his movies yet, but people were starting to hear about them. He was starting to get a uh, notoriety. It, despite some, you know, modest success for Mondo Trasho, Waters and his Dreamlanders, they weren't, like, hitting the big time. He didn't have... Believe it or not, after Mondo Trasho, Hollywood was not knocking down John Waters' door, you know? Wait, what? <laughs> but, what? <laughs> so that summer, most of his cast and crew just went back home, you know? Uh, they went back to their lives. Waters himself, he went back to his job at a local bookstore. Uh, he worked at a local bookstore in, in, I think, Provincetown is actually where he was at at the time, Provincetown, Massachusetts. Uh, he kind of goes back and forth between Provincetown and, and, and uh, Baltimore a lot. But uh, he starts writing his next film while he's working at the bookstore. So with all the money that he had made from screenings of Mondo Trasho, he was actually able to pay back the $2,000 that he had borrowed from his dad. So that's that's nice, you know. Uh, and then he immediately asked for another $5,000 to make his next film. Uh, and Waters' father reluctantly agreed. Like, Waters' parents are very, very supportive, but they didn't really like the kinds of movies that he was making like they didn't even really see them he didn't want them john waters did not want them to see <laughs> his parents to see his movies <laughs> like they really didn't want them to see multiple maniacs but his parents supported him which i think is very cool you know uh that yeah. they're just like my my son this is his creative this is his art and i'm gonna do what i can to support it and obviously he had already proved that he was going to pay the money back. So, you know, with, with $5,000 in hand and a growing group of collaborators, both in front of and behind the camera, Waters went on to create his most ambitious film yet, his first talkie, Multiple Maniacs. We're finally, we're finally to the movie we're talking about this week, guys. Oh, is that what this episode? <laughs> hey, oh, these, you know, okay, these first okay. episodes, there's always a lot of background info. <laughs> it's all, it's all important information, you know? Uh, Waters' inspiration for the film was uh, basically his hatred of hippies kind of he, he describes himself as a yippie right like he calls himself a yippie uh which is this i don't know he was like a political like he wasn't into all the free love stuff but he was into the protest stuff basically he kind of describes himself as a fish out of water in the late 60s uh he kind of despised what he saw with the hippie movement and the so-called love generation he found it insincere uh he would later say that Violence was this generation's sacrilege, so I wanted to make a film that would glorify carnage and mayhem for laughs. I remember seeing a quote from him. He said, I made this film which glorified violence at the peak of the hippie love generation, but hippies liked it, and part of the, its success was to offend my target audience in a humorous way. Of course, now that they loved it, this all sounds more calculated than it was. I don't know. It seems like it backfired on what he intended. Like, right. He got some hippie <laughs> fans out of it, but yeah. I don't know. Well, in 1969, just before he started to shoot Multiple Maniacs, Sharon Tate was murdered by the Manson family. Now, at the time, uh, the real killers had not been found yet. 
Uh, they did the Charles Manson, the Manson family. They nobody knew who had killed Sharon Tate. So uh, John decided that Divine would take credit for the murders in the film. He figured that if the murderers were never caught, there would always be the possibility that just maybe Divine really did do it. <laughs> Which I just love that. I love the way his brain works. Honestly, uh, of course, as we know, the murders were caught, and they were ca- caught while they were filming the movie. So Waters would end up having to quickly rewrite, change the whole ending, explaining that Divine hadn't really done it. He would later say, "Nobody, not even Divine, could upstage Charles Manson." He talks about that in the commentary, just kind of how they. It, it didn't sound like as big of a deal. Like they, they, they all knew the story, but he only gave everybody like little bits of it as at a time, I guess. Yeah. So it was like kind of on the fly writing for a lot of it, like the actual specific stuff. But yeah, just, it's crazy to think about that. Like they're just throwing out, like there's the scene where divide is taunting like David Lockhart about Sharon. Tate's right. Murder yeah. And he doesn't remember thing. it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but it's, and like nobody at that time even knew who Charles. They didn't Manson know who Charles was. Manson was. Yeah, and, and I mean, think about that though. This was like the, the the Manson murders were kind of the end of the love generation thing, which is sort of what John Waters is making fun of anyway. I guess nobody knew how big of a piece of like. You, you don't know necessarily at the time when something's happening, how, how that's going to be woven into the cultural fabric for decades, forever, honestly. Right. Uh, so right. they didn't know that, but you know, it just happens to be one of the most notorious murderers of all time. Uh, and he just wrote it into his movie <laughs> because, and he was fascinated by it. And he, he continues to be fascinated by the Manson murders for years, even later on down the line. And we might get to this in a future episode. I'm not sure if we'll touch on it or not, but he befriends one of the Manson girls and actually works to get her pardon uh, and get to get to get out of prison. Like it's, it's really John Waters is just a incredibly fascinating person. Like if you just start reading into even his non-film related stuff, he's just uh, endlessly fascinating. Yeah. I've been reading a little bit more about him and he gets definitely into, he, he's kind of that way with a few different people. There's even the uh, Patty Hearst, Patty Hearst, I think at one point, is it yeah, Lydia yeah, Hearst? And, uh, um, Chris, what's uh, Chris Hardwick's wife? Yeah, yeah. it's the daughter. But there, yeah, she's (laughs) of that family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just beginning to work on the film on Multiple Maniacs, Waters' group of Dreamlanders grew even more. Uh, He met this art school dropout named Vince Piranio, who uh, he had taken over this huge slum and turned it into what he called the Hollywood Bakery, uh, which was this insanely decorated commune filled with renegade artists. So they all kind of lived together in this big wacky house that was like a shithole you know uh but he and waters hit it off pretty quickly and waters almost immediately had him help out with multiple maniacs it was actually piranio who designed and built the giant lobster that raped divine at the end of the movie that giant lobstora i think is what they called it uh it was actually uh it was Vince and his brother Ed, who were inside of the lobster costume. Vince says he had just gotten kicked out of Johns Hopkins because, according to him, it was uh, his hair was too long, and so they <laughs> they booted him from the school. Uh, so he was staying in this apartment with like six other art students, I think he said, and like they all had their own rooms, but there was like the one main room, and it was just like the party room. Yeah. Uh, so he said that that's where like. They would throw parties there like costly, but then that's where it ends up. Uh, and I think you'll talk about this, but like Susan Lowe and uh, the Dreamland crew all start like showing up all in this place. Out. And, yeah, that, that become out. everyone's yeah. kind of hangout spot. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of Vince's friends too, apparently are involved here and there and like. Yeah. I mean, that's what's uh, kind of cool about this is that, you know, John Waters will meet somebody 
and then he'll meet another person and then they'll introduce him to another person. It becomes this like family tree kind of thing, you know, like you, right. you could almost like draw a family tree and it goes like John Waters and, and Vivian, uh, Mayor Vivian Pierce, Bonnie. And then it goes off to David Lockery, which goes off to divine. And, you know, like it's, it, you really could draw a John Waters family tree, like a dreamlanders family tree. And it would be kind of, it would be pretty cool to see. Get on it. Internet. Yeah. Come on. We're not doing it. So you got to do it. (laughs) (laughs) So Waters would later say that the idea for the lobster scene came from a uh, combination of Salvador Dali. Of course, Salvador Dali used lobsters several times in some of his surreal paintings. Uh, Jack Smith, who was an experimental filmmaker. Uh, There was this postcard of a giant lobster over the beach in Provincetown, Massachusetts, like that they would just like stare at uh, while they were on acid, you know, and imagine this giant lobster coming to life. Uh, And of course, you know, most likely taking acid and smoking a lot of pot had a lot to do with them deciding to put a giant uh, paper mache lobster at the end of their movie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, by the way, uh, Vince Perano, we'll, we'll probably talk a little bit more about him as the series goes on. Cause he's going to work with waters all the way through a dirty shame. Like uh, he works on m- almost all of John waters movies, maybe all of them. I'm not, not sure, but I know most of them. He is like the production designer, the art director on, uh, but his work as an art director and a production designer isn't relegated to Waters films only. He, uh, just like a couple of other Dreamlanders that we'll discuss, used his work on Waters films to begin an, you know, an actual career in film. He would later work on Baltimore-based TV shows like Homicide Life on the Street and The Wire, in addition to films like uh, The Blair Witch 2 and The House on Sorority Row. If you're wondering how that conversation went, uh, I, I was watching some interviews with Vince and, and even John, I think, I think Vince comes in like technically like halfway into like making this movie or something. Yeah. Like, cause they, cause I think that opening stuff, especially John Waters is talking about, like I rented these tents and I, I really could have used Vince here like you know, to make it look a little, <laughs> a little cooler, better, like not like a rented tank. tent, which is exactly what it looks <laughs> right. like. <laughs> right. But Vince says he, he just like walks up to it one day, like Waters walks up to it one day. is like, Hey Vince, you're an artist can you make a giant lobster? And he's like, I, yeah, probably. <laughs> he's like, so he says, John Waters hands him $37 and 50 cents. And he says, so take this. And he's like, I'm going to send you something. And he sends him the postcard with the lobster uh, and the blue ocean backdrop. Yep. And he says, so he's like, I just took it. I went to a hardware store. I got aluminum tubings, bolts and screws, wire, paper mache. He's like, my hands were a mess by the end with cuts and bruises, but it took about a week and a half. Uh, my brother and I handled it. He's like, we had to get inside of it and like puppeteer it kind of. And he's like, but yeah, my first big moment in showbiz was raping Divide in a lobster costume. <laughs> in, in the scene, I think you can see like as the lobster crawls away, a couple of its legs fall off on the couch or something. And you can and they see do. It. He said like three legs <laughs> yeah, fall You can just see yeah. him sitting there. He said, he said at the time when the movie started being shown, like he was so embarrassed. Yeah. He said he, he just didn't at the time making it envision it being on a big screen. Right. With lots of people actually seeing it. Yeah. And, uh, and he said that there's, yeah, you can see, he says uh, one part I, I, I got I only saw it very briefly, but like you can see their feet mm-hmm. or something in there. And like, uh, yeah, like you said, the legs fall off. And I mean, uh, you can clearly see I, the like strings that are holding up the, the claws and stuff. You know? He was, he was, bub because yeah the wire that's holding the claw like it breaks at one point so the claw stops working really well now granted uh, at the time that this was shown it it did not look as good as how we watched it because criterion has done a 
bang up job on restoring this movie. Like it looks better. I mean, John Waters even says it looks better than it looked when it was brand new. Like it, they like they have killed it. Because normally, like I mean, the the sound sucked. The picture like was scratched, and you know, like Criterion has like cleaned it up a lot. So you can see like those like the strings and stuff holding it up. You might not have even really been able to see those on original release. Because again, this yeah, is sixteen millimeter. Sixteen millimeter blown up and projected is going to look pretty fuzzy. Yeah, it looks fantastic. But he did say, uh, "Thank God that the movie is in black and white." He said because we painted it fire engine red. He said which. Uh, he's like, I just thought of this a few years ago, uh, that she was being raped by a cooked lobster, which would have bothered me to know it. I mean, I think the picture on the postcard is a red lobster, though, right? Yeah. It, it, you know. <laughs> uh, anyway, it was Vince Peranio who introduced Waters to a couple of other key collaborators, uh, Susan Lowe and Edith Massey. So Waters described Susan Lowe as, a, this is a quote, an incredibly sleazy artist model who could outdrink any sailor and love to embarrass her fellow models at art school by loudly farting while posing. <laughs> it made me laugh. And to see Todd's face light up. Uh, if only the listeners can see that. <laughs> um, yeah, they said they, you know, they said they met uh, what George Figs and Susan Lowe were together. They're together on interviews on the Criteria DVD. Yeah. And uh, George says he met John at 17 downtown looking for beatniks. There was like this bohemian center. And he said that he and Bonnie Pierce, this is George and Bonnie Pierce, would try to get, they would hang out there and try to get people to buy them booze. And he said that. Because uh, they weren't old enough uh, to get in the bars yet. Yeah, yeah. And they, they would talk about later making fake IDs. And it was before picture IDs. So that became very easy. Susan and John bonded over their love of Ike and Tina Turner and James Brown. <laughs> this this whole area was apparently, they said, like freaks, gays, and black people. Like yeah. that's like who was in this like little area. And Edith, who you mentioned, is was was a bartender. Yeah. Like literally that bar that's in this movie is the place that she worked. Yeah. And... uh Divide would not go there because she divide. Divide had uh, expensive taste and didn't want to go to a dive bar. <laughs> yeah, I think John Waters <laughs> describes that bar as like a place where uh, anything was allowed and the drinks cost twenty cents. <laughs> yeah, Meek talks about Edith saying that because uh, Edith was like the weirdest bartender to me. I was like, what a lack of personality in this person and uh, <laughs> to be a bartender. And Meek talks about her and says, like, she drove me nuts. Like, she, you couldn't talk to her about anything. She did not read. She did not like to converse. So I was like, what? Like, is, I'm what not sure that Edith Massey could read. It's not that she didn't read. Like, I think she might oh, have yeah. not been able to read. She mm. said she, Meek said she was like always in her own little Edie world. Yeah. Uh, she thought everybody else in the world knew who she was. She would like <laughs> talk to you. Like, when she had to address you, she assumed you knew who she was. They talked about like she would just, sit at that bar and like do the bartending and just get drunk randomly and pull her tit out and like <laughs> sit it on the bar and pet it and talk about how pretty it was. <laughs> oh my God. Oh God. Uh, I mean, so yeah, the bar, it was called um, Pete's hotel was the name of the bar where, where Edith yeah. Massey worked. Um, but yeah, they, they basically just asked Edith if she would play the bartender. So she's just playing herself in the movie. But that 
led her to uh, appearing in several other Waters films. And honestly, she becomes one of Waters' most popular stars, mostly because of her role probably in Pink Flamingos as the Egg Lady. But um, Edith Massey became, becomes like a cult legend because of her, because of being in John Waters' movies. And all she's really doing is being herself. She's not, she's yeah. barely acting. She's reciting lines, you know, but she's really just being herself, which is kind of the case with a lot of people in this. Everyone in the movie uses their real names, almost everybody. Um, Susan Lowe in Multiple Maniacs doesn't have a very big role. Her, I think she's credited as Cavalcade Pervert. She's in the Cavalcade of Perversion. Uh, she's the nude woman who, uh, you know, with the hairy armpits. With the hairy armpits. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty small role, but she would have bigger and bigger roles in other films. Desperate Living is going to be her biggest role. We'll get to that one in, in, a, in a few episodes. When you rewatch it, it is crazy, like how, uh, uh, the same 10 people are in this movie like 15 times. Yeah. Like, like in the, uh, the stations <laughs> of the cross scene, uh, yeah. like you see even divine is in the background in those scenes, uh, like divine out, out of drag. I, I well, I mean, they're wearing like a biblical times robe. So it's hard to tell, I guess, but, uh, yeah, everybody is in that scene. <laughs> everybody. And, and in the cavalcade of perverts at the beginning, the, like the squares that are freaking out are Pat Moran, uh, Bonnie Pierce and Mink Stoll just wearing short wigs, but it's, it's the and same cookie. people. Cookies, cookies in there too. Yeah. And, oh yeah, uh, cookie is in there. Yep, you're right. Uh, it's, yeah, yeah it's, and, it's, uh, it's. I don't know. That's fun that to me though. It's little little Easter eggs. Yeah, it was. It was. I remember it's like a Monty Python movie where the same like five guys play every character. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember Meek talking about it in one of the interviews. Like, just everybody's, you know, wearing their old clothes. Like, they always talk about David Locker. They're like, that's just what he looked like. That's just, that's just how, he, how yeah, he is not dressed. <laughs> this is not a costume. This is what he looks like. This is how he, what he wears. He's wearing, like, a Ringmaster's uh, jacket. <laughs> right. And Meek talks about, like, the turban was mine that I had on or whatever. It's, it, she said that the, the weirdest – or the – craziest moment with her parents was that she in, in the squares scene where she had her like blonde hair and the headband on and she was there and she said she was like leaving the house and her mom was like honey you look so beautiful Why don't you dress like that please look like that all the time and she was like no because i'm not an idiot mom <laughs> uh well the rest of the cast of multiple maniacs included of course uh divine in the lead role of lady divine uh david lockery as mr david mary vivian pierce plays bonnie this is in addition to the like small roles they play these are their their main roles uh mink stole plays mink aka the religious whore which is what uh, she's the one that <laughs> gives divine the rosary job uh cookie mueller plays cookie divine and paul swift plays steve i don't know why he doesn't play paul but he plays <laughs> paul swift plays steve which is cookie's boyfriend the um the weatherman you know and george figs as jesus christ and i love that in the credits it says george figs as jesus christ and he says in interviews he's like john asked me to be jesus christ and that was easy because i thought i was jesus christ and was like, and I was mentally ill. Yeah. And like, even Susan like confirms that she was like, he did. He thought it was Jesus Christ. And he said, and he's like, and I mean, I still think I am. Just I don't tell people now. <laughs> he's like, that man has done but, a lot of acid. <laughs> he, has, he, has done he said I'd always wanted to be crucified. Uh, he's like, I wanted to be crucified really bad. And John knew all of this. And so, so he just cast he him as like, Jesus. 
<laughs> yeah, it was like, uh, this was the high point in the 20th century for blasphemy, and I was happy to be a part of that. <laughs> <laughs> what a great quote. <laughs> Well, uh, most of those actors that we just named are not exactly household names, uh, but through this series, you'll start to hear them again because every single one of those people that we just named has appeared in multiple John Waters films, uh, like more than usually more than two. Uh, but I'm willing to bet I would play bet bet money that not a single one of them has appeared um, on, on Star Trek. Well, it just so happens. You're right. There's nobody in Star Trek. It's <laughs> good since, you a, since your voice is, uh, you know, struggling today that you don't have to list a bunch of credits. But yeah. I think we should probably, Gary, when we edit this episode, just take that line of Todd saying that and we'll just put that into every single one of these episodes because right. <laughs> just get used to hearing Todd say there's nobody in Star Trek in any of these. Maybe, <laughs> maybe when we get to Hairspray, I don't know, was... Um, was Jerry Stiller ever in Star Trek? <laughs> he feels like he should have been, but uh, we'll get to it when we get to Hairspray. Okay. Yeah. 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 So Multiple Maniacs was, of course, filmed in Baltimore. Uh, that's going to be the case with every single one of these movies. Uh, the tents for the Cavalcade of Perversion uh, were set up on the Dreamland lot, which was, you know, John's parents' front yard. And the murders and lobster rape scene were filmed at Dreamland Studios, which was John's apartment, which they didn't even bother to redecorate, which is why you will see Andy Warhol prints on the wall and uh, posters for Russ Meyers movies. There's even a picture of uh, Malcolm Soule in the nun habit uh, on on the wall there from, from, uh, <laughs> the, the, from Roman Candles. Nice, nice. Yeah, it was weird, too. There's like a... Uh... Now I'm thinking about uh, Cookie's apartment or something, I guess. But um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, we should. I mean, that, I it's, say cookies, the, it's Cookie's department in the film, or oh, is that that's right? But it's yeah, John's I'm department thinking about in real life. the child, the uh, the uh, infant of prod, the infant of prod. There's yeah. like a thing there. The the lobster card is there. I think. Oh, and, really? Uh, yeah, it's all like on the wall at different places. But the. Uh, I think there's even an Elizabeth Taylor print he said he got from like a ex-girlfriend or something. Yeah, and but, uh, well, and the the Andy Warhol it's a Jackie Kennedy uh, Andy Warhol print, which is probably I mean it was an original screen print, so it's probably worth millions of dollars now. <laughs> and John John Waters still owns it. He said that's oh, wow. crazy. And to think about Baltimore, it made me think like, well, along with the family tree, we should have like a director roadmap someday. Like, surely somebody's done that somewhere out there like because I, I keep thinking about like romero and pittsburgh yeah or jodorowsky in hell or <laughs> something. not yet he's Shyam alive. Shyamalan, Shyamalan in uh, philadelphia in philly yeah. yeah 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 so the toughest location for them to find when they were making this movie um was a church that would allow them to do the uh, aforementioned rosary job scene. Uh, the most notorious scene in the film, easily, I think. Uh, the most controversial scene in the film, easily. So a friend of John's had told him uh, about a priest who might let them use his church because he had let a few subversive political groups use the church for meetings in the past. So John contacted this guy about filming a scene in the church, and the priest said yes without even asking about the content of the scene. <laughs> He didn't even ask, so he's like, yeah, you can film a, a scene here, sure. So once they had set up in the church, one of John's friends kept the priest out of the way by engaging him in a political discussion. I think they were talking about, like, Vietnam and the Black Panthers or something, you know, so he kept him out of the way, uh, which allowed Waters and Mink Stolen Divine to shoot 
this scene. There is also a scene, which I, I should also mention here. There's a scene at the end of the rosary job scene where you see a guy shooting up heroin. Yeah. You're, that yeah. was just a friend of John Waters who was a heroin addict. <laughs> and, and, and it has nothing to do with the story. John Waters just thought it would be like extra sacrilegious if they had a, filmed him shooting up heroin in a church. So he did. I feel like I read somewhere <laughs> that that was maybe the guy he knew that like helped set up the meeting with the preacher. Or it something. may have been. It's possible. Yeah. Um, just, I think his name was Jack or right, something like right. that. I mean, you know, shoving the rosary up the ass is, I mean, that's good. I mean, it's good. It's not, it's not but, good enough. No, but we could go but, a step further. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's so, going to get topped in like 10 years. So what yeah. we got to do, <laughs> we got to have live. Uh, but, so when you see the guy in that scene, right though, he is like doing heroin, actual heroin. That's not a stunt. That's not a prop. Like the guy's shooting up heroin. And he apparently, John Waters said he lived to be like, he just died a couple years ago. Like he was a, he was a functioning heroin addict for his entire life. I don't know what a functioning heroin addict is, but he lived like to be in his like seventies. I think a functioning heroin addict to John Waters, a star. (laughs) So Uh, Keith Richards. Well, (laughs) good point. Excellent point. Uh, So this was not necessarily an easy shoot. Um, You wouldn't, probably be surprised to know that they did not have permits to shoot in any of these locations. Wait, what? <laughs> so um, they, you know, anytime that they were shooting on the streets, they were just doing it kind of guerrilla style when at times when they thought maybe there were going to be less people out. Yeah. Pat Moran's like in one of the interviews, like oh, John didn't have permission for anything. We had a camera we had actors, honey, we never pulled a permit in our life until hairspray. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, by the way, they never like John Waters refuses to say what church he shot the the rosary job scene in because oh, yeah he said that was from the screening yeah because yeah. he like the, the preacher asked them that the preacher the preacher eventually saw the film when they premiered it and um, John Waters <laughs> he was horrified obviously the the priest was so John Waters promised to never reveal the name of the church. And when you see them walk in the church, like the outer scene is not the same church that they shot the interior. Uh, But John Waters has to this day, never revealed the name of the church. Although he also, I think says that he probably couldn't remember it now anyway, because this was, that's how Mink was too. I remember. Yeah. I remember Mink telling that story in an interview and and being like, I I don't even, this was 60 years ago. Like who knows? (laughs) So the camera that they used on the film was this single system, 16 millimeter camera. It was the same kind of cameras that news stations used at the time, because this was before the advent of video. Uh, While this did allow Waters to shoot with sound this time, he could do dialogue, you know, you had to shoot in all long shots because the sound was actually recorded right onto the film as it was being shot. So you could, that's, that's why all of the dialogue scenes in the film, they don't, there's no typical like coverage. He's not like cutting back and forth between one person and the other. Like you're used to seeing that's not because John Waters didn't know that you were supposed to do that. This guy like lives on watching movies, but he had to shoot them in all these like long takes because uh, <laughs> that was his only option really. And the movie was like, uh, what do you say? It was like, a, um, it was the kind of film that a newsreel would use or whatever. 
And uh, he said it just didn't, this 24 frames per second thing would have made it impossible to sync up sound like later. Like uh, he, he pointed out like one of the scenes I remember in the commentary, there's like a pause, like right when it goes to the scene and they're like, wait a second. Then they start talking. And he's like, <laughs> it's just because there's like with the 24 frames per second, like you have to give it a second for the sound to like catch to up. Sync up huh? To sync up. It's some, something weird about that. He also admits that he had zoom abuse because he said he never had a zoom lens before. <laughs> so he's just going and in so and out. Like, all yeah. yeah, yeah so he's like, I definitely overuse that. I mean, he starts <laughs> out. That's how he introduces divine is like, you've seen divine, some big naked ass, uh, laying down in, in that tent and then he zooms in on the mirror zooms out and in the scene outside of the church him you know, divine and mink are talking and for some reason he zooms in on a guy behind them <laughs> and, then, and they go out of focus but when he zooms back they're still out of focus for a few seconds like they, yeah. because you know couldn't do anything about it uh, it's just the yeah. way he had to shoot but uh, because of that uh you know he, he was able to shoot with sound which is great but because of the way he was able to, that he had to do this, it made it really difficult for the actors. He, he, you know, John Waters, he's a, he's great at writing dialogue. Uh, his dialogue's really fun, and he had never had a chance to do that before. So he wrote a lot of dialogue, and you know, they rehearsed for weeks before filming uh, because they had to memorize this dialogue. Because due to the way that they were shooting, if someone messed up, they had they couldn't like retake part of a scene because he was having to shoot the whole scene in one take. So if somebody messed up a line, they would have to like start all the way over from the beginning, which not only is a waste of time, but you know, they don't have any money. So that's a waste of film and film's expensive. And I don't think they were stealing the film by this point. I think they were actually buying it. Meek <laughs> says uh, everything done at master shots, no cutaways. scene began and ended in the same take. So yes, you had to know your stuff because if you messed up somewhere in the middle, you had to start all the way over and that cost film that cost money that made John unhappy. And none of us ever wanted to make John unhappy. <laughs> so they, they said they were very strict about that. He did not allow like they, they said they, she was describing it as like they would film on weekends and during the course of the week before the shoot, they'd get together, they'd rehearse and go over stuff. But every person had their own script that uh, John would read every person's part to them exactly how he wanted it done. Uh, but he, she said the result of that was he just read every part exactly the same, uh, which was <laughs> frantic, lots of italics, yeah, no pauses sense. for breath, no pauses for emphasis, just blabbity, 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 blabbity. <laughs> And said Susan was like, uh, Susan Lowe was like, all scripts, like, she was like, they always had to be followed to the tooth, no ad living, or yeah. he would stab you, he said. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, they said that, um, you know, he would come in, he had like the yellow legal pad with the big pin, but then they ended up doing, uh, the thing on the, they called it the ditto machine. I had to look it up. I'd never heard of that before, but apparently like an old school Xerox or something. Yeah, but basically like the old school Xerox where it like uses some kind of alcohol substance, like, bleed some of the ink onto the next thing. So it uses like this purple ink and it copies it. But anyway, that's how they did. Everybody got like a piece of it. And uh, anyway, um, the oh, other little fun facts I thought were neat. When the, the, uh, the car that they jump into were like, they, they're crossing the street after the very first scene, like the whole sideshow thing and divided everybody and uh, David Lockridge or whatever. They're uh, 
walking back across the street and the cars go by like divides like really trying to figure out like those cars are real people just driving on that street and so yeah. like the one car doesn't stop so like, <laughs> <wait>. <laughs> like the other car does pause he's like oh she was being sweet so look at that and so they get in the car he's like by the way this car was on its last leg this was like legit Lochran's car and he was like so we had to like he pointed out a cut and he's like, we had to like give it a hot shot or something. I think is what he said to like, get it going. He's like, now it's going. So then the next scene, it shows them pulling into a lot. He was like, watch it. It died right here. He was like, that was it. That was, that was the death of the car. You just saw it on film. <laughs> he's like, they're just coasting right now. And they pull into the parking space. He's like, we actually kind of hid the fact that they're kind of pushing it into the parking spot. Hmm. He's like, and uh, he was like, that was in the projects in Baltimore. We just left it. <laughs> we can't be here <laughs> so they all he's like we and he's like he points it out and you can see it he's like when they're walking away from the car he's like they're very nervous so they're just trying to get out of there <laughs> so and he's like and one of them's holding a gun in the projects in baltimore <laughs> but uh and apparently his apartment was above a plumbing school too which i thought was interesting so wow. he said like these uh he said the plumbing the teacher or whatever was very cool with them and uh, even came to the premiere, but said that uh, every day they would be walking through his whole cast of characters and like all the plumber guys like in the class would just be like freaking out, like yeah. watching this line of people <laughs> walking through. Like, so weirdos just walking by. Yeah, just a bunch of weirdos. But I will say this, Pat said that, uh, Pat Moran says that, you know, she's worked with a ton of directors, Academy Award winning directors at this point. I said, the one thing you will know about John Waters is that for all of, his ex- eccentric whatever the word i'm looking for eccentric there is. eccentricity <laughs> yeah yeah that word that's the one for all that, i should have just right as weird as john waters is uh she said the one thing that he has in common with all these other directors is is that he comes in on time and he has a plan and he knows exactly what he's doing like mm. uh she said she's been around where like she said she calls them film pups She's like, film pups will sit there all day long thinking about, should those flowers really be red or should they be like this color or this color? She said, like, John Waters is the person that walks in and is like, I don't give a fuck what color they are. You should have thought of that before we got here. Let's go. Starting, we're starting <laughs> now. Let's, she's like, he makes decisions and yeah. he moves quick. And uh, she's like, so maybe, maybe you got to learn to use your own money because apparently that adds a lot of incentive. Yeah. <laughs> Well, once filming was complete, it was time to set up the film's premiere, so Waters once again contacted his old showcase, the Emanuel Church, but I guess by this point, they had decided they had risked their necks enough for art, so they turned him down, and they recommended that he try the First Unitarian Church down the street. So, like Emanuel, First Unitarian was also centrally located in downtown Baltimore, which is you know a good place for a premiere. It's right in the middle of town. So, Waters contacted their reverend, who immediately agreed to allow him to host the Multiple Maniacs premiere. So uh, Waters, he starts circulating posters that said, uh, you won't believe this one, a celluloid atrocity, which is a celluloid atrocity is a great tagline. (laughs) And all nine of his premiere showings sold out once again. Uh, His door prize this time around was a pound of ground beef. So you had a chance to win (laughs) a pound of ground beef. (laughs) Uh, As with all of the films so far, uh, people in the audience either hated it or loved it. But he did note that during Multiple Maniacs, the people that loved it were more enthusiastic than ever. Like people who loved it really loved it. Like people were into it. And the reception to the film gave him hope that he might be able to book more screenings of the film outside of his usual Baltimore Provincetown circuit. 
So the Baltimore Evening Sun, a uh, local paper there. Uh, but John Waters, by the way, loves to quote reviews from his local papers because they never like his movies. <laughs> but uh, they reviewed the film saying, Multiple Maniacs is not only uglier and more revolting than his Mondo Trasho, it is even more repugnant than The Conqueror Worm. Waters' first talkie is also his first sickie, which is a fantastic quote from a review uh and you know that's exactly the type of review that waters was hoping for you, you put for the waters first talkie is also his first sickie put that on the poster you know like but that's that's <laughs> outstanding uh and the reviewer that wrote that his name is lou uh cedrone he continued his review saying these people seem most appreciative when blood is being spilled and knives are being plunged is this part of the new world that they have in mind so for uh, for what it's worth, though, uh, I was actually shocked and, and kind of thrilled to find this out. Multiple Maniacs currently holds a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, making it Waters' highest rated film on Rotten Tomatoes right now. All right. That's yeah, that's pretty insane. Also, for the record, not one damn knife plunges into anything. No. In this movie. So <laughs> even the gun, do, the gun doesn't even have like... <laughs> The gun doesn't have any uh, any blanks in it. It's just a toy gun that they're shooting. You got to suspend your imagination. You know what's funny too? Just on a side note, also I was uh, listening to him talk about the uh, the censor board never had to watch multiple maniacs because uh, it opened in a church, uh, not a theater. So if it had like commercial release, apparently they have to look at it. But yeah. otherwise, like it just nobody ever bothered with that he said that didn't happen until 1980 when they were shooting polyester uh and it was opening at the charles theater for the first time and he said they ha had this lady go in and watch it for the censor board to make sure everything was kosher and uh said this lady was very catholic and very freaked out by this movie and could not believe <laughs> by it multiple existed. maniacs <laughs> by multiple maniacs yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh and said that she freaked out and there was like no like real thing to like ban it from the theater that yeah. she could go on. So she apparently went to the courts and like begged for them to help and said that, uh, uh, said that a judge ended up watching the movie, uh, and said, uh, the judge's quote was something like my eyes were definitely insulted for 90 minutes straight, but there's nothing illegal here. Yeah. So there, I, I mean, really there's not, it. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's offensive stuff, but there's nothing, there's nothing illegal happening in it at all. <laughs> so, um, you know, at the time of its release, it got some bad reviews from like the Baltimore sun and stuff. And like, as we said, hundred percent on rotten tomatoes, which means the internet must love this movie, Gary, right? If there's anybody who's going to love John waters and everything he stands for, surely it's the internet. <laughs> and, uh, no, I'm just kidding. There's, there's some people that watch this and need a nap besides Todd. <laughs> You know what's funny is there is actually uh, there is no in between on this movie. Like when you go to user reviews on like IMDb, Amazon, <laughs> love it or like hate Letterbox. it, Letterbox. Yeah, it is like one star, half star, and then it's like look at two. There's nothing. Three, nothing. Four, nothing. <laughs> it's just like maybe maybe by five you pick it up, and then with some other people. Uh, but two to four, eh, nobody messes with that. Nobody feels that way about this one. Uh, we'll start with Kyle. A simple one star review ruined my day. Just poor Kyle. Just felt okay. <laughs> uh, here's a one star from Thullen. 
who says, John Waters trying too hard as usual. So yeah, <laughs> another garbage movie from a very sexually disturbed film artist still trying to figure out the appeal of John Waters and having a hard time when I view drudgery like this. I'm a big fan of Crybaby and wish he would make more lighthearted affairs like that. Seems like most prefer his older, more obscure material, and well, I'm not one of them. The plot is ridiculous, acting's annoying, and even though I don't mind a good shot, gore, or exploitation flick, mind you, if they are entertaining in some way, but this is just shock for the hell of being shock. John Waters tries too hard to shock all the senses and in turn overshadows the great potential of subtle social commentary found within that is usually so brief that it never really has time to seep deep enough into the psyche and ponder what to think further because the viewer is usually immediately bombarded by following up scenes with perversion and depravity. Another John Waters disappointment for me. Well, hell, at least he gave us crybaby. <laughs> <laughs> so that is uh that is thawed. uh how about uh the mook gave it a star said i don't understand the point of making ridiculous movies that try and grab you in with an unholy amount of sexual and other shocking garble we get it john waters you're a weird horny bastard <laughs> also also this movie was just not fun <laughs> or entertaining in the slightest I will give this an extra point though for the i love you so much i could shit quote it's that a great fun. quote <laughs> so romantic Fortner says uh, one star I've seen these people in Walmart <laughs> uh, let's see uh, C says one star worst movie ever hey. All right. production value is very poor looks like the cameraman was on acid probably was plot is so boring and the shock of all the gimmicks is brainless waste of three dollars well the cameraman was john waters so uh he probably actually he says that they didn't do drugs while making the movie like they they say that they they were they were they stayed sober like during filming <laughs> doesn't mean he wasn't doing it the night before or whatever i guess aaron gave it one star and his review just says so I've got a Plymouth, a giant lobster costume, divide, and a camera. Let's make a movie. Hashtag stuff John Waters would say. <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> uh, I can't even pronounce this guy's name, but it's a half star. Aside from the lobster scene, a waste of 90 minutes. Oh, so they liked the lobster scene. <laughs> <laughs> the lobster scene. <laughs> uh, half star for Balls Balls, who uh, review simply says in quotes, rosary job. That's yep. all you got to say. Yep, yep. <laughs> yep, that was in there. Uh, what about Danny? Gave it one star. Literally, why do y'all eat up straight people making LGBTQ culture a perversion? Like, this is supposed to be empowering for my community? I get this was so long ago, but oh my fucking God, this shit is dumb. And I don't even blame John Waters. I blame everybody that hyped up his head. I'm sure there's a social, uh, societal critique in a film like this, but I don't know. This just isn't for me. I really still want to try and watch Pink Flamingos, but LMAO. Oh, wait, are they are they saying that the John Waters is straight? John Waters and Divine are straight? Yeah, <laughs> like, I don't know. Are they, they are. Uh, That's confusing. You are incorrect. Yeah. <laughs> there's nothing straight about those folks. Not at uh, all. <laughs> uh, 
Marvy even gave it a half star, saying it was literally excellent until that rosary scene. Such filth. That's the scene where everyone who cuts this off halfway through cuts it off as I'm during that scene. Right. <laughs> Jacob Britton, half star, uh, 80 minutes in, and I thought it was the worst thing I'd ever seen. Then a lobster shows up, and now I think it's slightly better than the worst thing I've ever seen. Oh, well, there you go. That's a positive <laughs> review. <laughs> Uh, Anton Ego, half star. I've seen a lot of insane and disgusting films. Some of them, them I enjoy very much. The others I can at least appreciate. But this, this shit, no sir. You got to draw the line somewhere. And I guess this is mine. Fuck you, John Waters. I will never watch something you're involved with again. God, I am pissed off. Was that reviewer's name Anton Ego? Yes. Isn't that the food critic from Ratatouille? <laughs> 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 Am I crazy? Hold on, I'm googling it. Talking like that now. Uh, I'm googling it. Yes, it is. I just googled it. It is. Why did I know that? That is weird. <laughs> Anton Ego, film historian Justin Bishop. Everybody. Uh, All right. A few more quick hits. Here's one from Allison, who gave it a half star and says, "I like some John Waters films, but this started out as tolerable, but it's rough. Then it devolved. Criterion has hit a new low." Vegan alerts, bacon reference, women wear fur co- coats, and hamburger. Is that a thing? <laughs> <laughs> vegan alerts? like a Vegan alert. <laughs> and finally, one star from The Hick Critic. Well, give it this. It's a piece of art that accomplishes what it sets out to do. Discuss the audience. And it passes that incredibly low bar with flying colors. But that doesn't mean it's an enjoyable or interesting experience. So it's in the same boat as the artists that paint with their own shit, urine, or blood. However, Criteria did a great job of the restoration of this film. Okay. Well, it is not a positive note. <laughs> Using their own piss, shit, and blood. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Right. The hit critic, huh? All right. So, well, guys, this welcome, I guess, to the world of John Waters uh, for the uninitiated. Yeah. <laughs> um, before. I get into my thoughts on this film. I'm just, I'm just fucking dying to know, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> Me and Gary were even talking last night about like, what the fuck is Todd going to think of this? I mean, we thought the same thing with our Alejandro Jodorowsky series, and then, you know, you quit. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm excited too because I forget how it came up, and I was just like, I'm just excited to see what Todd says. And Justin's like, he's gonna hate it, isn't he? And I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> like, I was like, I didn't love it. So Todd's going to hate it. Well, first of all, Cat Davis stopped watching Cinema Shock movies long, 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 long time Excellent. ago. Excellent. <laughs> so I hope she came back for this one. Yeah. Wait, that, she, she, she watched the Spider Man movies, though? Like, nope. No, but she stopped watching even longer before that. I was like, hey, we're doing Spider-Man. Do you want to watch that? She's like, I'm all set. I'm like, okay. Wow, she's just anti-cinema <laughs> shock, huh? Yeah, yeah, she's not it a fan. It finally worked out that I was like, I need to watch this. So Jennifer, I'm going to put this on. And she was doing something else, but she got sucked into it, like started watching it. By the time we got to Rosary Job, she was like, what is this? Why are you watching this? You're- this is terrible you mean your catholic wife uh my catholic wife yes this is she was like i don't even think i'm that religious anymore and i'm kind of offended by this (laughs) well at one point i heard from from behind me i heard i heard cat go 
so are they just naked this whole movie <laughs> <laughs> there's not that like, much well, nudity in it i mean right, right, right. well it was the one it was the one scene between uh bonnie and mr david i think oh, yeah. and it was just it's it's a bit of an extensive scene and they're both naked so yeah but so when i when the movie started i was just kind of like okay if this is going to be like hey here's the trip around john waters idea of a freak show and be like okay um, all right fine whatever and then it kind of shifted into this uh sort of a heist uh revenge tale and i was just kind of like all right so you know we've got something going on here then she goes into the church and has this experience with this woman while it's juxtaposed with you know the death of jesus christ i was like okay so we're diving a little bit deeper maybe this film has something to say then we get to the lobster scene and i was like uh I'm not sure what to think. <laughs> well, well, to be fair, I mean, he does. There is a lot of satire in this, but yeah. the lobster scene is just in there because he thought it was funny. I think. Yeah, <laughs> I was about to uh, say that. That point with Jennifer was like it was definitely like a, already she was done, and then she would like the lobster comes out, and she's like, "Okay, what the fuck? Like, what, <laughs> what is, that? is she getting raped by a lobster?" <laughs> right, right, right. So, like, I I will say this movie took me on a ride. I, I kind of like the gorilla style long takes and it was kind of fun because I think at one point when Mink and Divine come out of the church, a couple walks past them and to keep the scene going, you can tell John kind of shifted the camera over so that they would be, be they would be hidden behind Divine. Well, yeah, because those like, people are clearly, they're not extras. They're just people who are right. Because at one the point street. they turn around and look at what's going <laughs> yeah. on. So I kind of dig that aspect of it. And uh, the black and white, I think, adds to the look. It's pretty cool. Um, I do not feel the need to ever watch this again. <laughs> <laughs> but it is it is interesting. I will say it is interesting. I but mean, it's I definitely it's a good introduction to John Waters. Like, I don't I, this is not necessarily the first movie I would recommend to people, but if you're following, like if you're wanting to follow his career, you know, and see where he came from. I mean, this is, it is a John Waters movie. He's not, he hasn't oh, yeah. quite refined yeah. everything yet, but I mean, this is a John Waters movie through and through. There's, there's certain shots in this that I think in an alternate, uh, in an alternate reality, maybe this is a hot take. I don't know. Divine would have made an excellent Joker. I mean, cause there's a, there's a couple shots where I'm like, whoa, whoa at the whoa, end when she when she starts like foaming at the mouth and she's like got this manic look on her face yeah, and she's going crazy yeah. because, you know, like that I can totally see that because I feel like that shot of Divine and he's like kind of zooming in on her face on this like wild eyed like uh -huh. Divine has a presence. Uh, yep. Despite what you think of the might think of the film, like you cannot de deny that Divine has an absolute presence. Now, is she a great actress? Not really, you no. know, but she's so charismatic and so watchable that it, that doesn't Very. really matter, you know, yeah. because yeah. you can't take your eyes off of her. Oh, oh, let's, let's, let's not mince words. There's not a good performance in the film. No, 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 there's not, no, but that's not the point. Yeah. It's none of know, these are trained actors, right? For, I would have, it's, it's a bunch of friends getting together to make a movie. Exactly. In your, in your telling of 
John Waters personal history had when you got to the part of he left film classes and watched movies all day had the second part of that sentence been he stopped going to film classes and instead took English and philosophy classes then his filmography would have been completely different oh yeah but it is what it is he had a very distinct idea of what he wanted to do at a very young age mm -hmm. and i have to imagine that he did it he I accomplished mean, it yeah you're right to for for someone so young i think he was 23 when he made this movie mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. have such a unique and specific vision for what he wants to do with his art and is able to pull it off with very limited resources and as oh, like yeah. as we oh, see yeah. his career go on he gets a little bit more and more resources i think pink flamingos was this was shot for five i think pink flamingos was maybe 10 grand uh, so still incredibly low budget but as he goes on he gets more and more resources but he never loses his like vision for what he wants to do you know yeah uh, now yeah. he doesn't always try to shock like he does in these early films as he goes on that's no longer his priority but he still is making movies that nobody else could or would ever make you right. can tell he's definitely out to like shock people with this one, and he you can appreciate that about it. I think every issue I have with it is uh, stuff that could be fixed over his career, like yeah. like just technical. Te things. There's a lot of. I mean, yeah. technical yeah. from a technical standpoint, it's not great. I mean, that's clear. Yeah. You know, and I, and I think even him piecing together the scenes and stuff, like I think some things for me were drawn out a little too long. Yeah. There was, there was, some, I, you know, somebody called it boring in one of those reviews. I, I don't think it ever gets like completely boring, but it, it does like, sometimes you're like, okay, time to move on to the next thing. I well, feel even like the rosary it, it, scene, which I, I don't find, I mean, I, I, I understand why it's, why it's offensive to people. Um, I just think it's so ridiculous that like, I can't help but laugh at it, you know, but does it go on too long? Yeah, it goes on too long. John Waters even says it goes on too long. <laughs> like he yeah. he 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 yeah. knows that now with decades of there's, experience. There's, there's, yeah, there's like these pacing things. You know, he'll probably uh, work on or refine. Right. Well, I was just gonna say an interesting point to that was as I was watching it, it did feel like it was dragging on, and I hit pause real quick just to see where I was at in the runtime, and I was surprised at how far along I was in the movie. I was like, oh is this moving faster? And, and I, and I didn't, I just didn't pick up on it yeah. or whatever. So I think there's not a good balance of, of pacing. Well, and, you know, and that's just, there are scenes that go on too long and there's other things that maybe there's a whole bunch of little things real quick that end up making up for that or something like that. I don't it's know. Balanced, but, yeah. It's balanced by uh, the people that are in it because yeah. although they aren't trained yeah. actors, there's something intriguing by a lot of these people. Like yeah. I mentioned Meek and Divide, obviously. I think David... But David uh, Lockery and Bonnie Pierce, like they're all very watchable, even though they're clearly not like great actors. That whole right. opening, like I was super into the opening, the sideshow <laughs> stuff. Yeah, the cavalcade that. of like, perversion uh, is outstanding. It's so yeah. good. <laughs> and even when you think like, God, they're really letting David Lockery talk for a long time on this. But he's like, he's just like kind of... I like listening to him talk. Yeah. So it was kind of okay. Yeah. And, uh, so yeah, like I, I was, 
Yeah, it just it was mostly just the the pacing stuff. I would guess. I mean, there's the obvious stuff like yeah, he got Zoom happy and all that weird mm, shit. But yeah, uh, it is impressive. I'm always going to be impressed by somebody that young who just goes out and makes something happen. Just like does that. it. I can't hate on that. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. You, and this is before you could just do it on your iPhone or whatever. You know, like he had to go out and borrow a camera. He had to get film. He had to. Uh, arranged to get all of his friends together. And, you know, this was a group effort, which I, one thing I love about these early John Waters movies is that they are very much group efforts. Like he is the general in charge, but like this is a bunch of friends and a bunch of like weirdo artist types who are just getting together to make something, you know, which is, yeah. which is cool, you know? And, and I mean, and he had to go so far. Like, I think, um, at the end, the National Guard is chasing Divine, and that's the actual National Guard. Like, he managed to get the Baltimore National Guard in the film. And, you know, like, he shows a lot of ambition for, like, 23 years old? What the hell was I doing? I was not, not doing jack shit, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I had, you know, because I, I can't help it, uh, and we talked about this already, but, like, Khodorowsky, like, I, I thought a lot about his stuff, and he always what was weird I was struggling with with Waters at first was that it began to feel less like a story, although there is like a through line, obviously, but it did feel like sometimes he was just finding a way to get some weird shit into a movie that he wanted to shoot, you know, mm -hmm. like trying to piece it in there. So it didn't flow as naturally as I guess it could have. And then I would think about like Hodorowski stuff and then I would be like, man, as much as the problem is he gave me, I also felt like I could watch his stuff and be like all the weird shit, especially when he'd explain it in a commentary. Like I'd be like, okay, I see what you were doing, like what you're alluding to here, what this is, you know, symbolizing in this scene and, and that sort of thing. Even if I would never have got, I don't know. It's just the weird. And I, and I felt that with waters, I was like, why are you doing this? What is this? But then I kind of, the more I read about him, I guess I got, you're into surrealist mm -hmm. stuff. And, uh, and this is, more along those lines, like just a, I don't know. It's weird. I'll, always with these things, one of my biggest things I, I walk away from wondering is like, I'm obviously no art critic, so uh, or a film critic, really. Like, what? I don't know how successful something is. Like, if you're making something that nobody watching it is going to get right off the bat, or like, be interested enough to analyze further. Uh, did you succeed or did you not succeed? Right. You know what I mean? Like, and I, and I don't know. And that's, and that's always the weird thing. Like what's, how many people, obviously there are people that watch multiple maniacs and they love it, yeah. but you know, not everybody's going to watch this and be like, wow, I really wonder what he was going for here. And, uh, and the more you read about it, you can find like these little things, like, like the dude in the bed with cookie that that's a weatherman. Like I was like, I don't get this weatherman thing, but it turns out it's not a weatherman. It's like, part of the weather underground yeah the weather like underground it's a it's a, yeah. a political movement uh so people watching the movie at the time would have absolutely known what that was you know what i mean and he talks about that a lot like the hamburger scene in the uh cavalcade of perversion yeah it's like he was talking about the hamburgers a dollar he's like that joke doesn't work anymore he's like but it was like that was expensive at the time that was yeah that's an absurd <laughs> amount of money for a hamburger right. he's like He's like, now I regularly eat at a restaurant and pay $18 for a hamburger. Right. So. <laughs> exactly. Sometimes you have to think about it within the context of when it was made. And, and especially with this film, because a lot of it is him railing against like what, you know, 
the politics of the time and religion and, you know, hippies and things like that, you know, like, and and you have to think about it when the movie was made. I think that's the case with a lot of movies, with most movies, honestly. I mean, we, we talked about how, you know, John Waters clearly knew the types of movies, the type of art he wanted to make. Even, even back, you know, when we described Hag in a black leather jacket, like that's a, that sounds like a John Waters movie. He was 17 years old. Uh, But also I think, it's pretty evident when you watch this that Divine knew exactly who Divine wanted to be. You know, like Divine, uh, Divine had not come up with that iconic look. That doesn't really happen until Pink Flamingos. Uh, when uh, oh, what's his name, Van, Van, Van Smith? I think Van Smith is the um, their longtime makeup designer, starting with Pink Flamingos. Uh, but that iconic look isn't here. But I feel like the character, the, the character that Divine is playing, Lady Divine here, is like a prototypical Divine character. You know, uh, angry, gross, <laughs> willing to do anything. I mean, she eats a cow's heart at the end of the movie. Like, that's an actual cow heart that they had, like, been keeping in the fridge that they got from from a butcher, you know. Uh, that's kind of like... She could do worse. Oh, she will. That was that's uh, John Waters calls that training wheels for uh, for pink flamingos. It <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and also multiple maniacs proves that right off the bat that for John Waters nothing is sacred. Nothing is sacred. Uh, sex, religion, family—it's all on the table. He's not out to offend just the the squares, and the sh- and he's not out to offend straight people. He's not out to offend Republicans. He's not out to offend Democrats. He's out to offend everybody. <laughs> you know, like like everybody who watches a John Waters movie will find something to be offended by, which is exactly what he wants. You know, uh, and not because he wants to like make people people mad. He like just likes to get a response out of people. Uh, and I know that this, and honestly, most of his movies are not going to be everyone's cup of tea, you know, in, in multiple maniacs, the, the acting is amateurish. We've talked about that. The action is clumsily staged. There are, you know, we mentioned shots that go out of focus. Um, I mean, it's clearly made by a bunch of folks who don't quite know what they're doing yet, you know? Uh, but what makes it work, I think what makes it work for me and what makes a lot of his movies work for me is that John, John Waters is a filmmaker with a purpose. Like he, he has a purpose that he's shooting for and he, he almost always nails what he's going for. Um, and so we've mentioned the criterion restoration of this, which is f- a phenomenal restoration for when you, if you ever go look up pictures of what it looked like before. <laughs> I mean, this, the, the print was sitting in John Waters attic for decades just in a sweltering heat you know there's no reason that this movie should even survive but uh criterion did a miracle with the restoration but uh in the, that criterion collection set there's a, a really great essay written by linda yablonski i'm just going to read a quote from it because i thought that this really kind of hit the nail on the head she says Indignation grounds this in every one of his films, whether they're taking on religion, gay icons, bigotry, homelessness, uh, the dictates of beauty, the desire for fame, or middle-class complacency. This is what makes him a subversive filmmaker, not the lewd or criminal behavior that his characters embrace. Uh, They may be savage and strange, but they have principles. Talking about his characters. And I'm like, that's that's it. That's why his movies work because he's not just like his care. There's a warmth to his characters, even when they're kind of disgusting people, like you still can't help, but 
watch them and and be and be drawn in by them. Uh, and and you know, like I said at the top of the show, Multiple Maniacs is a punk movie. John Waters is a punk filmmaker. Uh, this is a movie made by a bunch of misfits who were battling the conventions of what society was telling them was good and decent. And then they use their art to create a response in their audience and they satirize everything from religion to politics. And they, but they do it in a way that's funny. Like this is a funny movie. I think, I think John Waters movies are very funny. Uh, It's sometimes easy to get distracted by how amateur it looks and how, you know, the, the performances not being great and things like that. But if you really pay attention to how it's written, like the dialogue, I think, I think John Waters' dialogue is hilarious. I think it's really funny. I think it's snappy uh, and smart. And I think it's going to, it's something that he gets better with over the years. But like, if you read like that, like the thing that you read at the beginning of the show, Todd, when you were doing your uh, intro, that's funny. That's fucking funny. <laughs> like, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, and yes, it's delivered in a way that's not great because David Lockery is not a great character, not a great actor, but it's funny. Uh, and, and I think one thing that I really realized as, as I was researching this, especially, uh, and then watching the film again, is that you can really see Waters' influences here. You know, uh, the the cinema verite-esque way the film was shot, that documentary almost look, was really done out of necessity because that's the camera he had and that's what he had to work with. But it yeah. does conjure up images of French New Wave films, the kind of stuff that he was seeing in New York. Uh, but then there's also plenty of influence from exploitation flicks and monster movies. I mean, what is the divine lobster scene other than a play on a kaiju battle? I mean, that's what it is. <laughs> like a bit. Yeah. Like divine is Godzilla. <laughs> divine is a drag it's monster queen versus Godzilla. monster versus monster. Exactly. That's quote, exactly. Quote unquote, that is 100% yeah. correct. Uh, it's, yeah. it's, it's stuff. It's stuff. I saw, you know, he talks about like, uh, I mean, he mentions like satirizing, sex movies like uh, he mentions i have a woman and yeah Inga and, uh, he said but his biggest influence was uh probably foreign films mm -hmm. he said just because they could break a lot of taboos like it gets nudity and well yeah i mean mondo trasho the, the the name mondo trasho is a place on is a play on the italian mondo movies like mondo cane being the most famous one uh, which is also kind of what Cannibal Holocaust is is playing on these like documentaries. They they were documentaries, but they would you know show nudity and things like that as a way to get around censorship because they were well, quote, funny docs. You mentioned earlier like his uh, interest in art house or art theaters and stuff like that. He's obviously like a fan. He's an art fanatic or whatever. But you know he he talks about it stuff like uh, loving. Uh, nudie movies and drive-ins and all of that stuff he says i also love all that stuff but uh but I, I wanted to use like all of those different elements in a movie that would open at an art theater right i mean you know even the name multiple maniacs is inspired by herschel gordon lewis's 2000 maniacs that's where the name comes from and and he's said in interviews that he was trying to make a, a quote from him uh, that he was trying to make exploitation movies for art house theaters that's what he was trying to do. And, uh, and I think that even, you know, with multiple maniacs this early on, he was well on his way to meeting that goal. I mean, he even says that like his, his movies actually play better in art houses than they do in grindhouse theaters. Like they just connect oh, with yeah. the audience better. Yeah. Yeah. You, uh, you say that uh, I actually have a quote. I was, I was going to mention that uh, directly from, uh, from John Waters. He says, 
I was always crushed when I learned a long time ago that my films did not work in the grindhouses and drive-ins because those audiences didn't think those films were funny. They were screaming in the horror movies. They were jerking off in the sex movies. We were <laughs> laughing and embracing them for how extreme they were, but we were always one step removed with irony. And that's why my films didn't work with those grindhouse theaters. Yeah. So he bummed that, that they didn't work with those same audiences that he obviously also loved. Yeah. Well, guys, I think we are just about, I think this is just about right time to, to wrap things up, but we need to get into further viewing for this week. Uh, so I'm going to start, let's start with Mr. Todd A. Davis. Uh, Ooh. since you're such a big fan of this film, what would you, <laughs> what would you pair, uh, with multiple maniacs as a double feature? You know, <clears throat> I, I, I feel like in the discussion, I really did try to stay positive you did you did i was shocked and surprised and i <laughs> thank you <laughs> so i i really expected you to kind of like dismiss bash this it. movie more or or bash it um but i i felt i was no honest I, you, but yeah. like you were yeah real. so yeah so i i i in continuing with that i gotta admit i have an issue trying to pair this with something it's There's a tough not one a lot of yeah yeah i mean unless it's like go, pink flamingos <laughs> right right if we, yeah, if we say, hold, other john waters movies right if we hold to our rules of like okay nothing else from the filmography mm. you know no sequels yada 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 uh then it, it does become kind of tough because what you just said justin like it doesn't really work with grindhouse stuff mm -hmm. it's not exactly an art film i mean it's kind of both while at the same time being its own thing so um for this it made me think of two other movies mm -hmm. so it made me think of like if there was this movie and this movie um multiple maniacs ends up kind of being in the middle okay. where it's a lot a lot of really weird bonkers stuff that you question why somebody would film that but also like okay they were trying to say and do something mm -hmm. very unique so um i'll start with that one trying to say something but holding true to their vision um heavy on the dialogue and uh, a, a couple of similarities uh, from 1994. The tagline is just because they serve you doesn't mean they like you. Well, that's I easy. I just watched that movie. So it's clerks. Yeah, it's clerks. <laughs> and <laughs> speaking of a movie where um, you, you one thing you mentioned about multiple maniacs was there's not a single good performance in the whole film. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> listen, and I, I adore clerks, but there yeah, is not a, clerks. you could argue that Jay Muse is good, but he's really not like he gets, yeah, he gets better. He gets better, but, um, silent Bob for his two lines. There yeah. You but there, no, every <laughs> performance in that movie is trash, but it's still a fantastic film. I love it. It's right. It's still my favorite um, Kevin Smith film. Exactly. Um, you know, uh, pretty well written, very well uh, written. Yeah. shot in black and white mm -hmm. out of necessity. Mm -hmm. Uh, that leans heavily on the location, Red Bank, New Jersey, mm -hmm. uh, very guerrilla style. Um, he did have permission so that, to shoot there, though. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> but it's also um, a bunch of friends getting together, making a movie. Exactly. So from so that's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum, from 2002, the tagline is, do not attempt this at home, based 
on the TV, based on the wildly popular MTV TV show. Oh, that's Jackass then. <laughs> it's Jackass. <laughs> I just rewatched all of those movies right before the new one. God damn, I nothing makes me laugh as much as Jackass. Does. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's and it's stuff where you're going, why, why, why? but but you can't stop. Every watching single one of them is so. Every single one of those movies is great. <laughs> Even- and so, all those guys, all those guys are not good actors. Johnny Johnny Knoxville, who has been in a bunch of good movies, who has been in a John Waters movie. Yep, he's in a dirty not shame. Not a great actor. No, well, but he's a piece But you can't because help but watch them. You can't Johnny help but Knoxville is one of those actors who basically just plays Johnny Knoxville in every movie. And if you're okay yeah, with that, too. then he's he's yeah. he's not bad. He's just there's not a lot of range, you know. But. Right. So I feel like if you take elements from both of those, somewhere in the middle is multiple maniacs okay i I, I like that i like it how about i I like that this is one of my favorite further viewings from you todd especially clerk i think clerks is a great parallel honestly i think that that was that was a good one how about you gary wow you a lot Uh, to live up to now (laughs) yeah i was gonna say i i I actually feel kind of good that todd did such a nice job there because i have no fucking clue Really? Nothing? No you got nothing? I, I don't know. I mean, Except- honestly, the first one I thought of, and this is not my official pick, but Fondo Elise for some I, I mean, mean that- <laughs> okay, so I mean, I almost yeah. said like a, a like a Hodorowski movie like that, but I don't know. It feels like they're... <sighs> uh, I can't believe I'm going to say this. <laughs> I feel like Fondo Elise is better made than, than Multiple Maniacs. <laughs> like it's it's uh (laughs) it's more it's more uh refined like in all those places that i thought john like it'll feel like you're watching a a real b movie to like a actually sort of professional job here right uh, (laughs) i feel like i'm insulting john waters and i don't mean to (laughs) it's uh i don't know there's there's trade-offs you'd make because also i could get behind everybody had multiple made or uh, yeah multiple maniacs more than i can fondo elise oh yeah definitely uh, yeah. get pretty yeah. sick of fucking lease yeah she's fondo. terrible <laughs> <laughs> and fondo is also terrible they're both terrible people yeah. i mean granted most everyone in this movie is terrible but they're still charming <laughs> like you know that's the thing about john waters movie is that there's a lot of like awful characters but you you still like love watching them you know i almost i almost honest to god said something like rocky horror but i felt like that was too on the nose or something yeah but Mm. it has the you know even even when uh uh i don't know why i just forgot the fucking character's name uh, from this movie or from Rocky Horror? No, from Rocky Horror. Why did I just forget? Uh, Brad, Janet, Dr. Frankenfurter, Riff Raff. Frankenfurter. Magenta. God bless. <laughs> I was like, oh, maybe we can edit that out. No, nope, uh, we're listening. But even, <laughs> even when I just feel embarrassed all, because I, I really, I, I love that movie. So, uh, but Frankenfurter even goes on that rampage at the end and stuff. So mm-hmm. it's like, it's like a lighter hearted. I don't, I don't yeah. even know if lighter heart is the word for it, but I don't know. It just seems like just also just outlandish. It's also inspiringly weird. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that. not, so I could see that. That's not a bad pick. Um, I, I think uh, just based on knowing that it was a uh, influence, I decided to watch this movie uh, for the first time in many years. I, I've seen it once before. 
uh, probably 15 years ago, maybe. Uh, but Herschel Gordon Lewis's 2000 Maniacs just have a Maniac double feature. Uh, right. Not with Maniac, though. Because that's less fun. Oh, that's a less fun. It's although, gonna be a real downer. After <laughs> it's a less fun. I love Maniac, but it's a it's, it is a bummer of a movie. Uh, <laughs> but no, two thousand Maniacs, nineteen sixty four. Herschel Gordon Lewis, the Godfather of Gore, another filmmaker with some great nicknames like John Waters. Uh, if you've never seen it, it is probably H. G. Lewis's most well made movie. I think I like Blood Feast a little bit better. I think Blood Feast is a little more fun. But two thousand Maniacs is basically about these people that get uh, kind of lured into this little small Southern town. I think it's set in Georgia, although it's clearly filmed in Florida because there are palm trees in the background. And I think HG Lewis filmed all of his movies in Florida, uh, wow. but they get brought into this little Southern town for the town's centennial celebration. And then it, uh, that you find out that the centennial is celebrating the, the town's destruction during the Civil War when uh, when the North d- leveled the town, basically. Oh. <laughs> so essentially, they're being drawn into this town to be uh, killed as revenge uh, because they're all like from the North. So they're be- being killed by this entire town, which is why it's called 2000 Maniacs. The entire town is in on it. Uh, it's, it's really Ooh. fun. And because it's H.G. Lewis, there's a lot of over-the-top blood and guts, you know, like very bright red crayon colored blood. And it's a lot of fun. It's on like, (laughs) you can watch it on Tubi or wherever. It's very easy to find. I think I watched it on arrow, but uh, I think that would make a fun double feature, multiple maniacs and 2000 maniacs. Nice. I like it. So Uh, peak soul, by the way, is a uh, ordained minister with the universal life church. If you want to renew your vows, who mink stole about it. Yeah. Good to know. <laughs> I don't know why I just thought of that, but just, you know, if you decide to do anything that needs a preacher. Yeah. So Multiple Maniacs actually ended up getting picked up by uh, a guy named Mike Getz of the Art Theater Guild. Now, Getz... Matt I- Getz, the congressman from Florida? No, not, the, not that guy. Mike Getz. <laughs> I don't know if they're related. I, I, hope, I hope not. <laughs> Matt Getz wouldn't be picking up this movie. No, Matt Getz has never seen this movie, I guarantee you. He is not. He is not. <laughs> Uh, I actually looked into Mike Getz a little bit because I was curious and, and he was the curator. He was a curator and theater manager and was a key figure in the midnight movie phenomenon, which is, you know, this John water series is kind of part of our maxi series is what I'm calling it on midnight movies along with Joe Dorowski. And we've got one more series coming up in a few months. That'll be uh, the continuation of this. But uh, you know, this, this guy, he started out uh, screening underground films and coffee houses. He later hosted a series called Round Midnight. Uh, so it was a midnight movie series at the Cinema Theater in Los Angeles. He was a, a big proponent of underground experimental cinema. And he was actually once arrested in, in 1964 during a screening of Kenneth Anger's Scorpio Rising. Uh, R.I.P. Kenneth Anger just died a, a week or so ago. But he was uh, Matt, my, now you got me saying Matt Getz. <laughs> He <laughs> got in my head, Gary. Uh, but Mike Getz uh, got arrested and convicted, actually, of exhibiting an obscene film because he showed Scorpio Rising. Oh, yeah. Wow. So uh, anyway, a few years later, he picks up multiple maniacs and he puts the film on tour uh, doing midnight shows in 16 cities, including Cleveland, San Diego, San Francisco, Los Angeles and London. And Waters and David Lockery actually drove cross country from Baltimore 
to Los Angeles to attend the LA premiere. And he mostly did it because the Manson trial was about to begin. And John Waters, again, obsessed with the Charles Manson case. And he wanted to attend the trial, which he did. Uh, uh, John Waters attended the entire Manson trial. Uh, so, But he went to the <laughs> LA premiere. And he the the premiere was packed. The film got rave reviews. Uh, with the the Los Angeles Free Press favorably compared the film to Todd Browning's Freaks, which John Waters just loved <laughs> that comparison. Uh, San Francisco, however, that's where the film enjoyed its biggest success. San Francisco was really the place where, outside of Baltimore, where John Waters really started to get noticed, which is probably why he moved there later on. But. Mm. Uh, multiple maniacs were shown there at a movie house called the palace theater. The palace theater's main attraction was an avant-garde theater troupe that waters described as a drug crazed group of hippie transvestites called the cockettes, like the rockets, you know, but yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, by the way, if you want a further, <laughs> further viewing, further, further viewing, there's a documentary on the cockettes. The documentary is called the cockettes uh and, and it, it you can get watch it for free on tubi i watched it a couple of days ago it's it's pretty fun uh it's very you know standard now, standard I, talking head but uh yeah i saw the cockettes the gary's mom story hey that's the cockette with no no s singular oh just, just yeah, yeah. okay yeah. <laughs> You know what? You can't hate on people that go out and do something that they love and make a job out of it. And I don't see what the big deal is. Uh, so multiple maniacs played at the palace regularly. Basically they would have like, they would screen like underground films, cult films, uh, and the cockettes would perform and then they'd show the movie. That's kind of what the palace theater did. So multiple maniacs plays there for months regularly at midnight shows. It was a huge hit. Uh, John Waters had, really found his audience there, you know? Uh, and the manager for the Cockettes, I think his name was Sebastian. Uh, was his, uh, the manager for the Cockettes. He, he loved multiple maniacs and he loved it enough to, uh, he offered to fly divine out to Los Angeles or I'm sorry, to San Francisco for an appearance at the palace. So divine hopped on a train, uh, on a train, uh, sorry, divine hopped <laughs> on a plane, uh, in full drag, by the way, uh, only time that, Divine's ever really done that. Full drag gets on an airplane by himself in full drag. Nineteen was this nineteen seventy? Uh, nineteen probably nineteen seventy one by this point, and flew across the country. And the cockettes were all like waiting at the airport for him to come off, and they're all in full drag. So it had to be. Can you imagine being on that plane? And you get off, and you've got this three hundred pound drag queen in front of you, and then walk out. And there's all these drag queen hippies waiting on him like waving signs like divine <laughs> all this but this sounds insane anyway uh so divine gets there and uh they're doing this live show basically they're showing multiple maniacs and divine's gonna do a little performance beforehand and john waters actually wrote a special live show for divine for the occasion and uh john waters would come out on stage and introduce divine as the most beautiful woman in the world and then divine comes out on stage full multiple maniacs costume like the the exact thing that she wears in the film the liz taylor wig and everything um and she's pushing a shopping cart filled with dead mackerels uh, which she would later throw at the audience in between uh, what John Waters called glamour fits, which were a combination of exhibitionist poses and temper tantrums. So she's doing this, all this weird shit and then throwing 
dead fish of the audience. Dead you know? fish. Yeah. 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 So uh, <laughs> the end of this happening uh, is what we call this. This is a happening. Uh, this uh, at the end of it, a fake policeman would run on stage to like, you know, arrest divine for being weird, I guess. And then divine strangled them. Uh, and the stone <laughs> crowd who were all like on LSD, they were just cheering him on <laughs> as this happened. So, uh, so divine, like this is divine becoming a star basically. Yeah. And John waters even says like from that moment on divine is divine and divine has dedicates himself to being like a star like this is because of these shows in San Francisco. And when I was thinking about when I was writing this and looking into this, you know, this happening was not unlike the panic shows that Alejandro Jodorowsky was involved in, you know, like they're this, this just doing weird shit on stage to get a rise out of the audience. They're not as quite as mean spirited as some of the Jodorowsky stuff was, but it's kind of the same type of thing. And in fact, multiple maniacs midnight run here at, um, in San Francisco, 1971, this coincides almost exactly with the run that Jodorowsky's El Topo was having in New York. These things are happening on different coasts at the same time, basically. Huh. Uh, and the crowds in San Francisco, like, loved Divine. I mean, Divine, like I said, they'd found their audience. This was their audience. They just had to find more of these people across the country. But it was clear that Divine was well on his way to becoming a legend, one that would be solidified with his next collaboration with waters. Like it's on the next film that divine becomes like the divine that we know, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, and while they were promoting these shows at the, at the palace theater and some other places, uh, divine and waters did a lot of interviews with the underground press, uh, divine in particular would always say the most outrageous things. Uh, they wanted to leave San Francisco with, uh, an especially hideous impression is what John Waters said. <laughs> and, and one statement that really confused interviewers, because uh, this is something that Divine would repeat to multiple interviewers, was when Divine would ground, grandly announce, in my next film, I plan to eat dog shit. Now, little did they know that Divine was telling the truth. And that, my friends is where we will pick up next week on part two, or next episode, I should say, part two of John Waters' Divine Filth as we discuss Waters and Divine's follow-up to Multiple Maniacs, the infamous midnight movie Pink Flamingos. We did it, uh, fellas. We did an episode on uh, Multiple Maniacs that lasts longer than the movie. That's the goal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every week <laughs> we on go. Cinema Shock. Well, yeah. um, I mean, it's not a very Who did long. next week when we talk about eating doo-doo? <laughs> <laughs> uh, real quick before we we wrap up i do want to uh, mention a couple of my sources on this because uh, these will be my sources for at least the next couple of movies the main one being i mean other than all the many many interviews that you can find of john waters because the man does like to talk uh and that criterion has some great interviews on it and a, and a commentary with waters but uh john waters is also a prolific writer and his uh first autobiography which is called shock value which i think will go all the way through i want to say polyester maybe um was my main source for this because i mean he just tells you everything you want to know i would it's one of the best autobiographies from a filmmaker that i've read just because not only is his story fun and fascinating and as weird as you would expect but he's also just a really funny writer and a really great writer which is why since 2004 all he's been doing is writing because he can it, it's easier than trying to get a movie financed and he's good at it uh but i highly recommend shock value by john waters i've also got a book of um 
John Waters interviews from the conversations with filmmakers series. Uh, that's just a series of interviews in chronological order that, uh, you know, it repeats a lot of the same stuff that he talks about in shock value, but it's, it, you know, every now and then he'll throw in an extra little tidbit of information. So those are going to be our main sources, at least for the next mm, two or three episodes, probably. I don't reveal my sources. No, Gary's sources are confidential. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, guys, where can y'all be found on the internet? I am at, this is Gary Horn on Instagram and Twitter. If you, <laughs> if you like, I don't know why it made me laugh. If you like wrestling, I host, this is pro wrestling at this is pro wrestling on YouTube and at TIPW show on Instagram. I also work with the national wrestling Alliance and you can access their links in their bio on Instagram at NWA. And I'm working my way through the entire Star Trek franchise in chronological order on my show, Computer Resume Podcast, available now wherever you get your podcasts and on all the socials at Computer Resume. Uh, I'd also like to give a quick shout out to To Proudly Go. I mentioned them earlier in the show. Uh, to Proudly Go is a 501c3 nonprofit organization formed for the purposes of of creating safe and supportive spaces that celebrate science fiction, promotes LGBTQIA plus community, uh, and partners with important community causes to empower and foster a kinder and better world. You can find them at to proudly go on pretty much all the socials. Uh, tell them cinema shock sent you and tell flip Kiki. I said, hello. <laughs> yeah. Flip Kiki, I think might follow cinema shock. I know she follows I, me on Instagram. Yeah. Uh, yeah. She, Cause She's I sort of follow her. And, yeah. We've, we've Love uh, her. back and forth a couple of times. She looks, uh, she's fun. I'd love to see that show. I'd love to make it. My, myself it up. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, and I am at Mr. Todd A. Davis on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, and D and D beyond as long as they behave themselves. And I am at Justin underscore Bishop on Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd. The show can be found at cinema underscore shock on Instagram and Twitter. We're also on Facebook. You can also check out uh, all of our episodes as well as links to our discord, our merchandise, all that kind of stuff at cinemashock.net. Like rate review, share this with all your friends, any way that you can text them, carrier pigeon, whatever it takes, you know, <laughs> uh, to get them to watch this. Fox them. What? Fox them. Yeah. Fox them. What does that mean? That's from uh, that's from Robin Hood Men in Tights. Oh, I haven't seen that in a very long time. Oh, come on <laughs> oh, now. I'm not saying anything against it. I just haven't watched it in a long time. It's been years. Uh, long enough that I also did not get that joke. Yeah, I mean. Oh, but, damn we'll, it, you guys. We'll have Mel Brooks series one day on podcast. You know, we'll start back in the 1800s when he was born, and then we'll go from. <laughs> until next time. It's so weird that this is the second time that's come up in like a week. What, I was Robin in the Hood? car with like Christy Jades. He's one of the NWA wrestlers. And she randomly, uh, somebody, oh, we were going to get food somewhere. And I said, the night is young. And she said, E-Miter, the night is young and you're so beautiful. And, I was, and now Todd's bringing it up. I was like, oh. maybe it's time to watch that movie. Time to watch it. That's a sign. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Anyway, may the wings of liberty never lose a feather and be excellent to each other. Oh, Mr. Johnny, this is even better than anal nitrate. It's better than Carvada. It's even better than heroin. Oh, Jesus, this is even better than the keys. If only we could podcast 24 hours a day. Oh, that would be supreme happiness. Oh, I love that. <laughs> <laughs>